0: john bailey and on this week's episode of popcorn junkie we celebrate 100 episodes that's right we i started while it's not the uh, you know you know while we've kind of hit 100 episodes before uh now unofficially this is officially the 100th episode of the podcast and so uh in honor of that i'm gonna do something special for the discussion but before we go to that uh, we have to get through the dregs that was this weekend in in new releases. This weekend, we've got Fifty Shades Freed, Peter Rabbit, and the 1517 to Paris. Let's get those out of the way now. How the hell are you, Anna? Jack, what do you want? So, you want to play? Yes, sir. I made a vow to love you faithfully. Forsaking all others. Did you sleep with her? To comfort you in times of need. And to keep you safe. For as long as we both shall live. I'm not sure how much I really need to talk about this movie. I think the... Accepted, uh, you know, a consensus is that this series was awful. It started from something awful, and it and it ends on something awful. So, I mean, there are people much more qualified than I to discuss, you know, the terrible implications and uh, th- themes of this series, especially for the books, which are way worse than the movies. But ultimately, this is just a boring skinemax flick. Like these, the cut. Like pick, if you remember the kind of erotic thrillers they had in the nineties, were things like Basic Instinct and um, Dangerous. Oh god, what's the what was the one with Madonna? Uh, some dangerous something. Um, here, let me pull up some. But that's essentially uh, what this kind of is. Uh, pull up some j- fatal, fatal attraction. Uh, I think of something recent. Here go. 2000s. Let's go back. Um, okay. Yeah. The boy next door. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Wait, here. What's the one in the nineties? These were big in the nineties. These were all over the place. Okay, uh, was it 93? No, um... Color of Night. Dangerous Heart, Dangerous Touch. The Maddening, whatever that is. A lot of these don't even have, uh... uh, Wikipedia pages. They're so, you know... Uneventful and, you know, not worth mentioning. Where is it? I'm Dangerous Tonight... Uh, naked Obsession, Body Chemistry. Where the heck is the one I'm thinking of? It's like one of Madonna's worst movie. I mean, she always did bad movies, except ex- with the exception of like a League of her, a League of Their Own. Um, all right, Dick Tracy. Where is it? It was uh, her and I think Willem Dafoe. Body of Evidence. Wasn't dangerous. I was thinking of something else. Maybe like Dangerous Liaisons or something. No, a Body of Evidence, which is like some weird BDSM. This is. The Fifty Shades movies are essentially this generation's Body of Evidence. Because Body of Evidence was this really bad erotic thriller about SM where like uh, Madonna is on trial for murder and she gets off by convincing, uh, the, by convincing her lawyer that she's innocent. And it's really, really bad and stupid. Uh, it's her and Willem Dafoe, but then like Franklin in it. And Joe Montagna is like, I think the, is the, the prosecuting attorney. So yeah, this, this is, this is what, that's what, Fifty Shades is most in common with only Body of Evidence. I think went even further. So, so Fifty Shades doesn't even have that going for it. The sexy, the sex scenes in Fifty Shades are some of the least sexy I've seen put to film. You know, like it's they. It's obvious um, that, that, okay. That's why uh, Dangerous Game was another Madonna uh, movie. It was more of a drama. About what? Uh film within a film format. Director. Marital crisis. Berate it's his newly religious wife. Not sure what that's about, but so that was a, another Madonna film, "Dangerous Game," which I think was another uh, not erotic thriller, but sort of erotic drama or something. I don't know, but <laughs> both of. The, both, there was Madonna in the nineties, so it wasn 't good <laughs> um, yeah it's just i don't that talking about things related to the genre or is more interesting than talking about this movie because Dakota Johnson isn 't all that charismatic or interesting. Jamie Dornan is pretty stale and unappetizing. Are are on, on, and unappealing, even though they've toned down how much of a dick Christian Grey is. I mean, he is just a colossal douchebag in the books, and as much as they've toned him down to be somewhat tolerable in these movies, he's still just a flaming bag of douche, and he is, and even yeah, you know, Jamie Dornan can't do anything with this character, and now and. And while last movie, nothing really eventful happened, this movie has them get married and then go on vacation. And then the rest of the movie is about how some guy who used to, who used to be Anastasia's boss has gone crazy and became a hacker and is committing arson in order to get back at Anastasia for picking Christian Grey over, it's not important because it's obviously not very well executed or compelling or thrilling. Like, the entire climax has them dealing with a climactic fight, but a climactic uh, confrontation between Anastasia and this guy named Jack Hyde. Get it? Because he's a Hyde. He's, he's like the Hyde to Christian Greys. Dr Jekyll or something it's um it's a really bad literary reference but or he became the monster when he was the mild mannered it's, it's it's a bad literary reference and it's it, to a book that's way better than the than the source material for this movie so Is there anything else to say about the Fifty Shades movies other than they're finally done and they can be relegated to the not at all titillating Skidamax flicks of like the late 90s? (laughs) Why would, you know, if you're into this, fine, just don't expect anybody else to tolerate it. It's just utter garbage and you can enjoy your garbage all you want as long as you understand that yes, it is in fact garbage. You're mine now, Rabbit. Yay! Oh, Thomas, what's going on here? My two boys getting along. Nothing could make me happier. Ooh, I'm a rebel just for kicks. I got us into this. I'm gonna fix it. There's a topic that this movie inspired in me that I want to get into, but I that would really pad out the review, and I think it would make more for a discussion point later on. Suffice to say that I blame John Katzenberg for the current state of the sort of live-action kids movies, uh, live-action and animated kids movies. I fully put that on Katzenberg and DreamWorks, and I'll explain why in a further discussion, but... Yeah, that's But for right now, let's just let's just say that Katzenberg is to kids' family uh, cartoons and comedies as Judd Apatow was to adult comedies. That their whatever innovations they were doing at the time have since become stale and are currently ruining the genre as a whole. Uh, but that'll be a discussion for another day. Probably during, probably sometime when there's a really bad kids movie coming out. But this one really baffles me because everybody is giving it a pass. And I can't. I'm sorry. You may like this. You may think I'm really overreacting. But I genuinely thought Peter Rabbit was an unrepentant, terrible kids movie. Personally speaking, I liked Peter Rabbit less than Fifty Shades Freed. Fifty Shades Freed is the worst made of the movie, although we'll talk about that with the next one. Uh, But Peter Rabbit just really offended me on a personal level in a way that not a lot of kids' movies have. And I think what it comes down to is I grew up with Beatrix Potter with the Beatrix Potter characters. My grandma had the books. Uh, I remember watching the anime these little animated shorts that adapted the Beatrix Potter books growing up, but and, and they're good. They're g- really good. They still hold up. And for some reason this movie from the director of of the Annie remake decided to just really throw away all the cool stuff from the source material, make slight references here and there, and then just tell another generic family comedy story. This is—I have seen this story so many times. The Smurfs did this. Alvin and the Chipmunks did this. It's all the same things. You know, we've got Domino Gleason, who I just en- or just recently enjoyed. At, in a futile and stupid gesture, and there's some, and there's another futile and stupid gesture alum that shows up this weekend, You'll, in uh, some in a surprising place, oddly enough. But he, Don between this and the new Star Wars, he's a good actor, and and yet here he is relegated to being the stereotypical like guy who has to have everything and it's plagues like they don't specifically call him out for having OCD or something like that but it is that characteristic the idea of him being like so perfect everything has to be nice and spotless and he's anal retentive and he has to learn to loosen up which he does from the hippy dippy neighbor neighbor named B who draws the rabbits just like Beatrix Potter does get it do you see do you see do you see Do you see what we did there? Uh, God, I hate that. Um. But. Uh, as I, ah, crap. Um, I lost my train of thought. Cause that, once again, like, yeah, we get it. You're referencing Beatrix Potter. You're not as clever as you think you are. Um. So, yeah, the hippy-dippy artist lady has to get the uptight businessman to loosen up and take the stick out of his ass and magical creatures involved. And look, man, I'm done with this. I can't with this, with these stories anymore. And the fact that people, I don't get why people are giving it a pass. Because it's doing all all the same stuff as all these other kid movies. There's a trio of sparrows who sing pop songs for no reason other than to sell the soundtrack. And they even dab at one point. People may not have noticed. I saw the dab. I saw the sparrows dabbing. Don't think I didn't see the sparrows dabbing. They also made an obviously male sparrow based on its pattern. Have a female singing voice. It's... Why? Why not just make them all female sparrows? Why, do you, why are you putting a male in there if, there's not, if you're not going to utilize the male voice? And if you are going to make it the male voice for some of the pop songs, why does he bounce along with the female voices in the pop songs you're using? What? <sighs> yeah. Um, there was one thing I wanted to be sure before I called it out. Um because it felt like it was an addition, but I don't want to say, I, if, if it was a reference to a, an actual, no, it doesn't look like it. They're not tagging it to a, an actual um, uh, Beatrix Potter character. Uh, they named a recurring elk character Felix Eer. As in D, so D apostrophe E-E-R. That has to be the laziest name. Peter Rabbit, Co- Peter Rabbit, Cottontail, F- Mo- Flopsy Moffy, and Cottontail Rabbit, Benjamin Bunny, Tiggly Winkle, Mr. Todd, jo- Johnny Town Mouse. Uh, you, you see, these characters have J- Jemima, Jemima Puddle Duck, Jeremy Fisher. All of these characters have unique, interesting names. Felix D- One, <laughs> What? Number one, He's not technically a, he's only, you know, he's only technically a deer. He's actually an elk. So why would he be named after a, an animal that's only slightly related to him? Number two, that ha- number two, why name him that at all? Why, they don't even call out his name. I learned this from the credits. I learned this from looking it up on, on the internet. Because they don't name him in the, in the movie at all. He's just a deer who goes headlights when he's staring at a car. Because deer do that. I this movie just bothers me cuz everything is so tired. They do they do some of the oldest most hackneyed slapstick I've ever seen. This is this is some home alone crap that they're pulling on this guy where he has actual bear traps. Well, technically I think they're rabbit traps. I don't think they're big enough to be bear traps. But like spiked metal clamping traps dig get dig into his skin, and yet thankfully there's not a hint of blood because you know that totally happens when these things you know hit you and then and then it's all like random and then he gets electrocuted like five times, and then they do it to another group of people in the movie who I think were literally there to make Donald Gleason look like less of a prick oh here are these two more posh and and stuck-up snobs more than more so than Dom Gleason. So here's somebody who. So here are people that you know are make Dom Gleason look better by comparison. That never helps. That never makes a movie better. And the reason I called out Jeremy, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg at the beginning is because this movie does something that DreamWorks made. The norm for these kinds of movies. Alvin and the Chipmunks did it. Garfield did it. The Smurfs did it. Celebrity stunt casting. Where they don't have to be good voice actors. They just have to be a known quantity. So you've got Margot Robbie playing double duty as Flopsy. Uh, the sister Flopsy. Not that you could tell them at all. Aside from like the clothing. The clothing is the only thing that separates them. Uh, aside from Cottontail. Who is whose only characteristic is that she is now some kind of unhinged, like, violent psychopath. That's the characteristic they decided to give. And that's the character voiced by Daisy Ridley of Star Wars fame. So you've got two Star Wars veterans in here. And, and they're both completely wasted. And then, of course, you've got Sam Neill, Rose Byrne, and Dom Gleeson, who are the main live-action cast. Doubling up their efforts and, and voicing other characters because I don't know they, they, being in the live action part weren't enough and they didn't want and the studio didn't want to pay for more voice actors. And of course the, the biggest stunt casting of them all Sia pop singer Sia as Mrs. Tigglywinkle, the hedgehog. Why is Sia here? There is no reason for Sia to be here other than you want kids who recognize Sia from the radio to be, to be, oh, look, mom, Sia's in this movie. It's like when they got Katy Perry to play Smurfette. It doesn't add anything to the movie. You're just casting a celebrity so that people, you'll convince people this is a good movie because the celebrity's in it. And like James Corden, fresh off of playing high five in the Emoji movie Is probably my least favorite part of this movie. Him as Peter Rabbit is just. Just as unlikable as High Five. I don't get why people are giving this a pass. Just because he's not as obnoxious as High Five. Doesn't make him good. He's not a good characterization of Peter Rabbit. There are way better versions of Peter Rabbit. You could have cast just about anybody else. Besides James Corden. And it would have been a better movie. Just by that. Corden is not funny. Quit putting him in stuff. He's not. That's like, this is basically like putting Jimmy Fallon in a movie. And people are like, oh yeah, remember Jimmy Fallon was in that? He's funny, I guess. No, most of those late night guys aren't funny. That's why they're hosting late night shows. The only, the only real exceptions to late night hosts not being funny are Stephen Colbert, Jon Stewart, and uh, John Oliver. Those are like the only exceptions. Because anytime, anything, anyone else, like, then, oh, and Larry Wilmore. Like, those guys are funny no matter what. Even on late night, even on the late night format, they're funny. But I I can't watch, but I don't really watch late night with Stephen Colbert. I don't know how funny he is compared to the Colbert Report. I don't know how funny that that is. Because I can't watch, I can't stand those late night talk shows. They're so cheesy, hackneyed, formulaic, and boring. They're not. They're like the antithesis of funny. Late night talk shows and radio and morning radio hosts. Those are like the bottom pillar when it comes to comedy. They just are not. You can't be funny in those slots. You have to because in order to be really funny, you have to do something that isn't. Like maybe Conan. I think maybe Conan can is the only one to really be funny within those parameters. Because he's clever enough to... Uh, Coden wrote for the Harvard Lampoon, for crying out loud. The dude dude has comedy credentials. He's funny. James Corden, he's just, a, he's just basically the comedy version of Piers Morgan. Some hack British... Some hack Brit that they brought over because, oh, he has an accent. And people apparently don't mind that. Whereas John Oliver has actually interesting... The only reason his show still works is because... He speaks truth to power and he puts, he speaks from a position of being a voice for people who don't have one otherwise. He, you know, he, he would, even though he's being, he'll be silly and irreverent, like doing the whole bit of that, uh, a country is so irrelevant that you didn't realize that's not, that's not, that's not Belgium, that's the Netherlands. You know, he'll do stuff like that. You, a country so irrelevant, you didn't realize that's not Paraguay, that's Uruguay. Then that's not actually Uruguay. That's Bolivia. You know, little bits like that, or the hashtag not, or the little hashtag jokes. He'll be irreverent, but then he's still speaking truth to power. Like he's the only of uh, one of these late night guys that could actually qualify for a Pulitzer Prize, in my opinion, because he actually does real investigative journalism, unlike these other assholes who just you know, ask celebrities fluff questions, and then if you're Jimmy Fallon, you'll play silly party games because you've got nothing better to do. Oh, we don't have anything actually interesting to talk about or be funny, so let's play a party game! Yay! Jimmy Fallon is a dork from school who always threw the worst parties, but you were forced to go anyway because your mom didn't want you to be like a dick to the kid. Uh, Just... I, I feel like I'm going off on tangents now because this movie just gets right under my skin. It does all the same crap that, Alvin, that these live action cartoons have done. And yet everybody is okay with it this time. And I don't understand why. Why is it okay now when it was so bad all the other times? People didn't like it when the Smurfs did it. People hated it when Alvin the Chipmunks did it. People can't stand the Garfield live-action movie. Why is this one okay when it's literally all of the same things? What is different? What is so different this time around? That they have accents? That's the only thing I can think of. People are suddenly turned into those three American girls from Love Actually. Where they're like, oh, please, say more things in your accent, James Corden. You're so funny. God, this movie is stupid. It's stupid, cliche. I saw every story beat coming from a mile away. Because this script was written in a half a day. And rushed out. It was written... Half a day before the deadline was due, kind of writing, and people are just okay with it. Not only that, the animation looks out of place in so many areas. That rabbits and and when they're by themselves in a field, they look fine. When they have to interact with humans, I long for the day where we had things where we had the finesse and the actual like style of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Because this is cool world levels of interaction with the humans. It is so badly done. And I don't get why people are okay with this. Because they really... These animals stick out so bad. And I think what what didn't help... Was the fact that they showcased these animals in advertising for Cinemark. And they looked even worse. So all of that bad CGI that was carried over to the Cinemark commercials... Was in this movie. I don't get why people are okay with this. I don't understand. Why is this one okay when all the others, when it's just as bad as all the others? And I think the worst part is they, they teased us. They teased us with what they could have done with an actual 2D animated Peter Rabbit done in the style of the Beatrix Potter drawings. They're basic, they basically said, yeah, we could have done that and we could have done an actual a- animated version of Peter Rabbit, but then how would we get in the really awkwardly anthropomorphic animals that really stick out and don't fit into the rest of the movie and fit it, And how would we get the Sparrows dabbing and the, all the pop songs that we licensed? Like, Sam Neill as the actual Mr. McGregor Was pretty good. He could have been a Mr. McGregor Foil through the whole movie. But they don't do that because they're a bunch of hacks. And they don't have anything really interesting or new to offer. It's the same schlock. It's the same schlock, the same garbage they that they cook off that they mass-produce. And serve to the public. And for some reason because this one has. Is flavored like bangers and mash. People are eating it up. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And I will continue. To rail on this movie. The longer I hear hear people say. Well it's not that bad. No. This is just as bad. As Alan and the Chipmunks. and And the first Smurfs movie. Just as bad. And if you don't think so. Well, I don't know what the hell you saw that I didn't, but I saw everything that sucks about modern-day kids and family films on that screen. And on top of that, I saw them tease me with something that could have been an actually good movie and then went right back to the same garbage. No, screw this movie and screw Sony Pictures for dumping on a really good character. Thanks for wasting my time, you assholes. in you that you never is lying dormant in there. Don't try and take any shortcuts. Do what you know is right. We've been chosen for this great work. I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just pushing us towards something, like some greater purpose? I've been struggling with how to tackle this movie because I don't want to, you know, knock Clint Eastwood because you know he was a good actor and he was a decent director He was a phenomenal director. Unforgiven is a, you know, a, 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 a just a great deconstruction of the genre that Eastwood that made Eastwood famous. Eastwood is not what you know was a pillar in the in Hollywood history, and yet lately. He's just been churning out these, these just not good movies. Like, I'm, I didn't see Hereafter. That was before I became a reviewer. But I just heard nothing but bad things about Hereafter. I didn't see, uh, I didn't see J. Edgar either. I missed that one. I missed it. I saw Grant Torino, because that one was his big, like, Return to form after because he did letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Father simultaneously. Then he did that changeling movie, which got no, which went nowhere. And then he came back and it was like Grand Torino, and it was his big like send off movie. Like here's this guy coming back, you know, coming back to showcase just how good he is. And I haven't revisited Grand Torino, so I don't know how it holds up. But I never saw Invictus. I never saw Hereafter. I never saw Jake Edgar. I did see Jersey Boys, and that was definitely not good. And I never saw American Sniper, either. And then lately, we've had Sully and the 1517 to Paris. And from what I remember, Jersey Boys was Clint Eastwood's, like, technically worst film. Like, for everything else I saw from him... All the direct, you know, all the direction he's done, from what I remember and what I've seen, it is um was you know was at least you know uh, at, at least admirable and was a was well directed and well shot and well produced. Jersey Boys was the first one that looked like somebody was making it in the backyard on their iPhone it really was, and especially since i was the senior that american sniper came out jersey boys looked like somebody who has no idea what they're doing and was making their first ever film i don't understand what, how that came to be you know like how he went from cuz i mean before that his last directorial thing was j edgar and even though i heard that was a bad movie at least it looked like a movie jersey boys can't even say that there are better Versions of Jersey Boys that are just the musicals shot by people's camcorders in the audience. And yet, he seemed to have topped himself in terms of quality. Like, Jersey Boys was his least competent film until now. The 1517 to Paris, which I was holding out for. It could have been good. You know, it's an interesting... I, I figured it could have, had to be an interesting story. But... The 1517 to Paris is probably going to go down as one of Eastwood's worst movies he's ever produced and made because it's just mind-bogglingly tedious and not at all interesting until the actual terrorist attack that they depict. Like, the movie opens up... The first act is about them as kids, and for some reason, the entire first act has supported has supporting cast of comedians. Thomas Lennon is the principal of the Christian school where they all met. Je, uh, Jenna Fisher from The Office and Judy Greer from Archer are the are two of their are, there, are two of the guys' moms. Tony Hale from Arrested Development is the gym teacher, and freaking Urkel himself, Jaleel White, is in one scene as their history teacher. And he probably gives the best performance out of all of them. It's, it's insane how they went about this. And, it, it and, it just reeks of incompetence the whole way through. The basic idea is that you've got uh, the three guys, all of the people involved in the actual attack, uh, aside from the terrorist himself, Ayub El-Kazani. Uh, Spencer Stone, Anthony Sadler, and Alex Carlatos. the three Americans, play themselves, as does Mark Mark Mugalian, the... Uh, And his wife Isabel, they played themselves. Mark was one of the one of the only uh, casualties. He he was a victim and suffered major damage to you know he he was shot and whatnot. And then uh, Chris Norman, the other the fifth person, um, the other one of them was a ex ex British expatriate who lived in France, and the other was uh, a British person visiting France, I believe. Let me pull up. let me pull up the wiki just to be sure based on... There it is. I keep, I keep telling you, man, Wikipedia needs to change their hyperlink colors because when you click on something, it looks... The purple is so dark it blends into the black text. Um, uh, yeah, Mark Mugallion... Uh, oh, no, U.S.-born Frenchman with dual nationality. Okay, so there was a French citizen. Um... Uh, he, he plays himself. His wife plays herself. And then Chris Norman, who was a businessman living in France. that He was the British citizen who um, was living in France. Uh, the only one I don't think played himself was Damien A., who was all he was known by. Uh, 28-year-old Frenchman working as a banker, the first passenger to attempt to tackle the gunman, and he wished to remain anonymous. So I, think, I don't think he played himself in the movie. Um But yeah, like most of the people involved play themselves, except they're not like Asa- Mark and Isabel and Chris Norman, they, te- they come off all right because we didn't spend the whole movie with them, and so they're essentially just being normal people. You could have easily hired a bunch of nobody actors to play them. It wouldn't have made a difference. But we spend most of our time with Spencer, Anthony and Alex. And the three guys aren 't all that cinematic or charismatic they don 't really carry the movie they 're just kind of dull and wooden they 're not actors they 're not they 're just guys they 're three dudes and so for the most for most of this movie we 're just watching three dudes living their life it 's not compelling and somehow like somehow at some point, Eastwood forgot. Oh yeah, in order to make a movie interesting, you need actors who can provide pathos. And these guys aren't trained actors, so they can't give you the kind of you know, performance that you would expect. And here's the thing. You could easily recast this movie with three actual actors as these guys. First up, uh, Spencer Stone. Look him up. Now look up Miles Teller. Shave Miles Teller's head. He could easily play Spencer. Next up, uh, we've got uh, Alex, Gera, uh, Alex Scarlatos. Who has a, he has a greek sounding name, yet he says he's German. I'm not sure if there was a thing in translation or something. But um, uh, look up Anthony, Alex Scarlatos, and then look up um, Liam Hemsworth. In fact, I'm doing that right now. Alex Scarlatos and then Alex Scarlatos and then look up Liam Hemsworth Easily could play Alec and then look up the last guy, Anthony Sadler, and then look up this actor who I mainly know from uh yeah, get Give me a picture of the guy. I mainly know the actor from from the gone-too-soon J.J. Abrams production, Almost Human. Uh, Almost Human was a Carl Urban uh, cop, future cop show uh, made by Bad Robot that had to be canceled in order to save budget for Gotham. And the actor I'm thinking of played an android in... In a in the movie who was forced to be with... Because all the cops are supposed to have android partners. And so Carl Urban is saddled with an, an older model played by Michael Ealy. You might also recognize Michael... Ooh, they're remaking Jacob's Ladder. Who's going to be the, Are you telling me Michael Ealy is going to star in a remake of Jacob's Ladder? Huh. we got Michael Ealy and Jesse Williams. Jesse Williams from Grey's Anatomy. Hmm. Oh, he was Reverend James Lawson in the Butler too. and uh, oh, he was in the cabin in the woods. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, I can't speak to Grey's his quality through Grey's Anatomy, but uh, oh, he wrote an opinion piece for Django Unchained. Cool, cool. Oh, um, oh, oh, the fans wanted uh, this guy, uh, Jesse Williams, to play Finnick O'dare in the Hunger Games. So that would have been interesting. Would have been he would have been I definitely would have recognized him amongst all the pretty white kids in that movie, um, so yeah, it looks like Michael Ealy is going to be playing the be the star in the remake of Jacob's Ladder, but uh, you may you'll probably recognize him from uh, the if you've seen Barbershop, Shop he's he played Ricky Nash who's one of the uh, employees there he was in Seven Pounds as Ben Thomas he was in Four Colored Girls he was in the fourth underworld movie as detective sebastian he was in about last night and think like a man 2 and the last movie he was in was the, the perfect guy but he's but he's been on a uh, tv in uh in the in a couple of main roles um the following he was theo secrets and lies he was eric warner uh he was he was in a TV movie... He was in a TV adaptation of Their Eyes Were Watching God as Virgil Cake Woods. And he was in uh, that, the, um, the show Flash Forward as Marshall Vogel. So, I mean, you would, you would recognize him if you see him. But look up Michael Ealy, E-A-L-Y, and look up Anthony Sadler. Miles Teller, Michael Ealy, Liam Hemsworth. Easily could have played these three guys. But... Clint Eastwood decided, no, I can't do that. I have to cast these three guys as themselves because they're the real heroes. And I swear to God, not, whenever you try to stunt cast a movie like that, it connect, Like I don't even know if it worked that well when they did it with Jackie Robinson back in the day because you need a charismatic and compelling person if they're going, if, even if they're going to play themselves. There's a reason Hollywood casts professional actors to play real life people, because there's a difference between being yourself and portraying yourself on film. And these kids are not ready for prime time. It also didn't help that they were reading out a script written by written as a, written by a first timer. You know what? You know what this? Uh, you know what the writer of this movie did before this? Dorothy Blyskol, the last thing she did before writing the 1517 to Paris was as a production assistant on The House, War Machine, and Logan. She was a PA. She was an assistant on movies. She didn't. Do, this is her first actual writing assignment she's apparently tied to something called that's entertainment from 2014, which I don't think saw the light of day. I don't know anything about this, but this is her first major motion picture and she is not a good writer. Like the movie opens officially after a quick flash forward to, to, um, uh, the hijack to the terrorist, uh, the hijacker, uh entering the train uh and a- then there's a quick cutaway to Spencer Anthony and um and uh Alec just driving along while Anthony does a narration for one for one shot literally one shot one sequence Anthony narrates the movie hey you probably you know duh, 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 but you, you, you know but let me tell you about how we first met And and I never come back to him narrating. He never narrates again. And then after that, the first official scene in the movie is Jenna Fisher and Judy Greer chewing out a teacher at a Christian school for suggesting that their kids might have ADD because their kids are acting out. And instead of doing something about it, they act like medicating your children is the worst thing ever. Folks, as a man who suffers from depression, lives with depression, and who uh, is on the autism spectrum uh, as a high-functioning uh, person with Asperger's syndrome, I have to say, hey, moms, eat me with your self-righteous bullcrap. No, your God isn't going to fix your child's mental disorders. You need to treat that. You need to treat that you can't just pray it away and then like the then like the teacher's also a dick because she throws out well children of single moms are statistically more likely to act out and it's like, my god is bigger than your statistics your god is nothing woman eat me with your self-righteous bullcrap i'm I hate this. I didn't come here to pay for a a Pure flicks knockoff. Eat me, Eastwood. Eat me, Dorothy Blyskull. Don't shove your bullcrap down my throat. And this movie that's supposed to be about these three guys who's not the terrorist. What's this bullcrap self-righteous... Self-righteous like ableism. Oh, no, we can't medicate our kids. We can't just pump them full of drugs. Oh, that's right. Because that's the problem. It's the drugs. God forbid they not be psychonormative. God! I'm sorry, just... That stuff pisses me off to no end. It doesn't help that the rest of the school is... Like... All of the teachers and all of the staff are played by comedians. And it's like this school was written as a comedy because the kids already, you know, the kids aren't in class when the bell rings. And so they have to go to the principal's office. What school does that? Any other school would just be like, hey, kids, go to class. Well, who says the kids in the principal's office for being late by one second? What is this? Who writes this junk? Was this actually what happened to them? Did they really go to that garbage of school? It's a Christian school, so that could be what likely happened. They just went to a bad school because their moms can't... God forbid their moms put them in public school! Not to say that public school is the best thing either, but... Unless your your public school is literally a trap house, there's no way it can be worse than what's depicted in this movie. Also, this is a Christian movie where Tom Lennon is the principal, and he literally ends a scene by saying, Jesus. Who says, like, he's supposed to be, a, he's supposed to be like a self-righteous, you know, but holier-than-thou Christian. What's he doing taking the Lord's name in vain? Lee's kid, Anthony, Anthony, as a little kid in this middle school, goes to the principal for language, for saying naughty words. The first act of this movie is utter and complete garbage. The second act of this movie is basically watching these three guys slideshow from their vacation. This is where we were at the Coliseum. This is where we went to the Trevi Fountain. This is the hostel we stayed in. This is the really cute girl that we ogled at the hostel we stayed in. That's also a thing that happened. They literally pan up and the camera showcases the thighs and backside of the woman who runs the hostel they stay at in Italy. I think it was Rome. Just bite me, movie. Bite me. The more I think about this, the more I want to put it on my least favorite list because if nothing else, it qualifies as an honorable mention. I really hope it doesn't get worse than this because it is some of the laziest filmmaking and is some of the just... All around, it, this has to be one of the worst scripts I've ever seen written. The only thing that is any good is the is the recreation of the attack on the train. Everything else is, the first act, like I said, is this offensive, pure flicks grade coming of age story for kids with a really weird obsession with guns and war. Because yeah, you know... Kids who are always going in trouble with the principal obsessed with war and have a col- having a collection of guns. Yeah, nothing wrong with them. No red flags there. They're just good, pure, red-blooded Americans. Ugh, this movie just, the more I think about it, rubs me the wrong way. And, um... Uh, just... Just... Uh, I've lost my train of thought as it were, uh, yeah, like, like I said, the first act feels like something out of a Pure Flakes movie. The second act is three, three guys going on vacation like it's an Adam Sandler movie. And the third act is the only thing good about it because it recreates the most, the only thing you'd want to see them do, the only interesting thing they do. I mean, hell, we, the least you could do is talk about the other two guys, the two British guys that were there, or like the British guy and the French guy, technically. You could talk about those two, Those two guys and the guy's wife, they have a story. Why aren't we talking about them? Because, what, the three Americans wrote the book? Those three people have a story? Tell that, too! Why are those three people not important? They also got awarded medals for helping to stop the attack. They are important. Why are you leaving them out? The more I think about this movie, the more it just, it, it also baffles me. That, it, that this came, like, I can imagine this from a first time director as well as a first time writer. This is from a first time writer who used to work, whose only other work is as a production assistant and, a, and an Academy Award winning pillar in the Hollywood community. This is something I wouldn't even pump out on DVD. I would bury this until, until like, somebody bought it for five bucks to stream on, like, Crackle. This is not a good movie. And it's sad that this is where Clint Eastwood's at, that this is the kind of movie he makes now. Next thing you know, he will be making Pure movies. He might as well. So, yeah, this was not a good weekend. This was overall a loss of a weekend. But we'll make the best of it. And after the break, I'm going to do something special that I've never done before. I'm going to break down... My 100 favorite movies, so stay tuned for that. The four of you enter a dark room lit only by two torches. In between the torches stands a roped figure with a long white beard. Greetings, travelers! The fate of the realm is in your hands! What is it that you require? Uh, Well, I was just saying that I probably could use an insurance policy on the realm as a whole, because if we're the ones saving it, uh, I may be getting a chance to cash that in. You know, I was just wondering, um, how intelligent can some of these creatures be before it gets weird if I eat them? Pit DM would really nice. Oh, I guess it's my turn. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) No, keep that Yeah, use that one. Join our bumbling protagonists as they try not to die and maybe save the world in the process. Welcome to Tragic Missile. In order to uh, celebrate having 100 episodes in the bank and up and up and being this productive as a podcaster, I decided to list for you all my 100 favorite movies I you know I would do something with the actual podcast itself like maybe list some bits but I don't think enough people listen for me to you know conduct that poll so we'll wait for that one but I wanted to break down my 100 favorite movies for me personally they're not all going to be great movies they're just movies that are personally important to me and that I thought were really good movies and so let's get this thing started uh no real countdown no real fanfare because there's a hundred of these and we need to get through them all all right so I try I think I'll try to keep myself limited to one minute discussion on all of these because once again that's a hundred minutes That's a whole thing. I don't want to go further than that. I may keep it down to half. I may keep it down to 30 seconds discussion. Okay. So uh, where are we at right now? Uh, And go. Number 100, Hoodwinked. Hoodwinked, I think, is a. it does better than, you know, does about as well as what Shrek did when it comes to fairy tales. Even though its animation is pretty cheap, they make up for it with really clever, you know, dialogue and humor. And I think Hoodwinked, it was a great sort of like addition to what Shrek did. And I think it's a really underrated classic. I think Hoodwinked is really good. And, you know, people have been trying to do it. Even they tried to do it again, it wasn't all that great. So, but the original, Hoodwinked, really fun, really great movie. Uh, Number 99, Pokemon Spell of the Unknown. The, I think, best, although it's arguably, you could argue which is better of the Pokemon movies. Uh, Pokemon, the first movie, kind of cliche, kind of hackneyed, doesn't really hold up. Pokemon, uh, Power of One, also not exactly a great movie, uh, kind of hackneyed. Spell of the Unknown is a genuinely good movie, and it has nothing to do, you know, it's probably the best Pokemon did in theaters, story-wise. You know, it may not have been, it may have been towards the tail end of the popularity of Pokemon in the mainstream, but the movie itself, I think, still holds up. You could argue which is better, this or Lucario and the Mystery of Mew. I personally think this one's better, but you know, there's an argument for both. Both are definitely the best that Pokemon has done in movie form. Number 98, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. A, a way to, uh, disre- while disregarding the source material, at, this movie manages to do something clever and unique. And sadly, most kids' movies don't do this. They, don't, they, they take a limited source material and they don't really add to it. They just pad it out. This tells an this tells an interesting and clever story. It has this really you know wacky and unique animation style that they don't really that they never really seem to recreate in the sequel, and that people have tried to do since Lord and Miller did it. Lord and Miller continue to prove that they're the exceptions to the rule when it comes to doing what is normally garbage filmmaking. With this, and with Twenty One Jump Street, and with the Lego Movie, they're so able to think outside the box, whereas most filmmakers and producers just just seem to. Only work within it. Number ninety-seven, The Voices, kind of a uh, underrated classic. I think it's not perfect, but I really enjoy it. Mainly because it's from one of my favorite authors, um, uh, Marjan Satrapi, uh who is an Iranian-born French woman uh, who was who was you know who moved to France. And you'll know more about that in, per- in Persepolis, which I th- I'm pretty sure I put Persepolis further up on the list. I I if I did, yeah, I did. Uh, but this is uh, this and Chicken and Plums are her other movies. One is based on her other graphic novel, Chicken and Plum, Chicken with Plums, I think. Uh, this was an original thing. Ryan Reynolds stars as a guy who suffers from, I believe, schizophrenia and believes his dog and cat are talking to him. And the dog and cat are also voiced by Ryan Reynolds. And so it's this really. Dark and twisted comedy starring Ryan Reynolds, who talks to his dogs and the cat, and the cat especially tells him to commit murder. It's dark, it's twisted, and I love it. It's one of my favorite movies that came out that year, and it's not perfect, but I love everything about it. Uh, number ninety six, Disney's Robin Hood from the sixties. I think in that time when they were re- reeling from the death of Walt Disney, uh, uh, Disney's Robin Hood was a really good return to form in the, in the sense, even though it recycled stuff from the Aristocats and it was a lot of that Xerox style of animation that they had to do for budgetary sake. The movie itself is still a fun movie. I I could watch that. any you know, Robin hood is one of those movies where I could turn it on no matter what and watch it and enjoy myself. It's just between, um, the Alan, the rooster played by, uh, Oh God, who is that? He's a classic country singer. Um, uh, uh, God, it's going to kill me. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Come on. Come on, IMDb. Tell me. Tell me these things. Roger Miller. Uh, between Roger Miller as the bard, Alan Adele, who, who they don't uh, t- call out as Alan Adele. I learned of Alan Adele when I was in a production of Robin Hood my senior year in high school. But uh, that's who that is technically in the movie. But uh, Peter Hustinov as as both Prince John and King Richard um, he does a both job in both. He does a great job differentiating between the two, even though King Richard only shows up at the very end, but he does a great job as, as a comedic yet, yet ultimately successful villain in the form of Prince John, um, Phil Harris, uh, who returning as another bear and after Baloo, he became back as uh little John. He's great as in that. Brian Bedford does a great job voicing this sort of Errol Flynn-style uh, Fox character. Pat Buttram as uh, sh- the Sheriff of Nottingham is, you know, is also a great uh, bit of co- you know really solid voice casting. This is where, um, even though you might recognize the names from, uh, if, from, if you grew up in this time period, you might recognize Phil Harris, you might recognize Pat Buttram, you might recognize Peter Ustinov and Roger Miller. This isn't about celebrity suncasting. They cast these people because they're good voice actors. And they really shine in this movie. Uh, number 95, Catch, uh, Hunger Games Catching Fire. The best in that series. It reaches that pinnacle with Catching Fire. And I think Mockingjay was sadly a, a step down in terms of quality. It, Mockingjay, both parts are essentially the Return of the Jedi. Whereas Catching Fire is kind of the Empire Strikes Back. It's a really great movie, really steps it up from the first movie, which I thought was good, but I had some problems, and um, uh, Catching Fire was a really great uh, way to continue that story, and it just didn't really end on the high note it deserved, but uh, that's just me. Number 2094, speaking of Lord and Miller, 21 Jump Street. I think 21 Jump Street is, is the lightning in a bottle that Hollywood continues to try and catch with things like Baywatch and chips, and they just can't do it because Lord and Miller are the kind of guys that are able to catch lightning in a bottle. Just let them do that, you guys do something else. Just a hilarious movie all around, and even though they may do some of the improv stuff that has become known with uh, modern day comedies, the script in and of itself is still, because that's the thing, Phil Lord and Chris Miller were kicked off of Han Solo for doing a lot of improv, but at the same time, they've managed to edit out most of the crappy improv and there is still a structure to their stories, whereas a lot of comedies tend to forego that and think, "Oh, we could just make up the whole thing as we go." And no, can't do that. Number ninety-three, They Live. They Live is still probably one of it's probably my, it's definitely my favorite John Carpenter movie. I think I don't think there's anything of his higher up on the list. But even though it's a, it's a trashy B movie. It's still like the things he's commenting on are still relevant to this day. It's crazy how this campy B movie about aliens taking over through corporate media and whatnot and uh, is still relevant in this day and age. And like I think, even though it's I don't know how well it holds up, but I think it's still a solid movie no matter what. And I think people should go back and watch it. Uh, Number ninety-two, Ghostbusters: The Original i think that's another one where you've got these guys who are more familiar with improv comedy but they're able to help create this funny well-structured movie about these guys who got, who bust ghosts it's a unique it's a unique story it really hasn't been done in quite the, that way before and sadly they never really were able to capture that magic once again it's still lightning in a bottle it should it shouldn't have worked it did Unfortunately, you can't really recreate that. Even with 22 Jump Street, they don't really recreate the same thing as the first movie. They just are able to continue it in a fun way. Uh, Ghostbusters is one of those ones I think we should just leave alone, move along to something else, do something else, try to focus on all other stuff that seems like it won't work, and then find a way to make it work. Uh, number 91 of recent entry, The Post. I still think The Post is, is one of Steven Spielberg's Best movies, and in, in, in terms of his commentary on uh, modern day life, you know, modern day politics, and him trying to overcome something that's affecting him from real life. Like, I don't know how good Munich is, but that I talked about it in the in the review how that Munich was him tackling the Israeli Palestinian conflict, and how um, War of the Worlds was him tackling nine eleven. I think The Post is just one of those movies that needed to be said. And people are saying, well, the, the New York Times are the real thing. But that's the thing. The, the Post is about how the Washington Post went from a D.C. area like local paper to a national new, you know, national stand, you know, newsstand staple. The Washington Post would still probably not be a local D.C. paper were it not for the people involved in this story. These are the people who helped make the Washington Post what it is. And I think that's the part that people are forgetting. That it's not just about how who broke the story first. It's about how the Post built itself up and and made itself bigger than anybody could possibly imagine through the course of events that happened in this movie. Uh, number 90, X-Men First Class. Probably one of the best, if not the best, of the titular X-Men movies. Like... You could argue which is better, this or X2. I've heard people say X2 is probably the best X Men movie uh, that's about the actual team of the X Men. But I think this one, it just, because, it, I mean, by throwing it back to the 60s, trying to tell this unique origin story, trying to tell this unique origin story in a way that they haven't really before, in the sense that you've got these two parallel ideals, once again, the Martin Luther King uh, and uh, Malcolm X approaches that people have called out with Xavier and Magneto. And so you've got Xavier who wants to live within the society and Magneto who wants to re- you know just completely start over with society. And you see how these uh mentalities built, you know, originate from with each other. And you get to see how you know essentially a, an origin story for the X-Men that we haven't before. Cuz I mean even in the first X-Men movie, the team what's already formed. This is a real sort of origin for the characters, and it tells it in a unique way that has, that, that, you know, that it was continued well for the the most part in Days of Future Past, and then just kind of crapped the bed in Apocalypse. And Dark Phoenix does not look promising later this year, but hey, at least it started off good. Uh, Number 89, The Exorcist. Uh, Quite possibly my favorite uh, horror movie, uh, all things considered. Uh, no, no, I guess there's more later up on the list. But still, like, one of the best horror movies of all time. It really, once again, it, show, it, do, it showcases how science can't determine in a logical way what's happening to this girl. They go about it logically the whole time. People aren't thinking, think, people are thinking rationally until, you know, uh, until, like, uh, what's the Shakespeare, not Shakespeare, uh, the Sherlock Holmes quote. Um, uh, bu- 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 crap. Uh, there, it's something about how, uh, until, well, what you deduced is fact. Um, it's one of his most, uh, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever, what, whatever, there uh, it is, whatever, get my words, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Uh, and that comes from the sign of the four uh, that that quote. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of what this movie does. This movie eliminates all of the possible subjects. And then it, it isn't until they just realize, look, we've gone through the medical stuff. We've done all these tests. Everything says she's normal, but obviously something ain't right. That's why we're bringing in the priest. Even the priest acknowledges, look, this is an archaic notion you sh- you know, don't rely on us. Go see a doctor. And she's like, "We have seen the doctor. You come see my child." And the priests have to acknowledge that, you know, this is what's what's really happening. And the priest, the main priest character, is a man who having a crisis of faith who has to come to terms with that in the wake of this exorcism and in facing this demon. And it's something that everybody tries to recreate in an exorcism movie, and nobody seems to be able to do. The Exorcism still remains one of the best horror movies ever made. And even the sequels can't even compare to just how brilliant it's and well, well thought out and paced the whole thing is. Number 88. Spielberg's back again. He's going to be popping up a lot on this list. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I never got into Indiana Jones for the most part. He was I was more of a Star Wars kid. Uh, I thought space fantasy was more interesting than your more pulpy sort of period pieces. And more pulpy sort of earth-based period pieces. At the same time, I can't. I I have to acknowledge that *The Lost Ark* is just a solid action adventure movie, and it definitely. I mean, him, Spielberg, and Lucas set the staple for how to do pulp adventure in an in the modern day because it hadn't been, really been done that well until since the twenties and thirties when it was when it was big, and Spielberg and Lucas was like, "Hey, we grew up with this stuff. Let's make this again." And they were able to do that. And it lasted for as long as they could do it, but nobody's ever really been able to recreate that sort of pulpy nature of things. And it just goes to show how well those guys in the 70s knew what they were doing, even though they were just a bunch of nobodies in Hollywood for the most part. Uh, number 87, uh, probably a um, forgotten gem from a couple of years ago, Nebraska. Nebraska is from Alexander Payne. Uh, who just recently did Downsizing, which is probably his worst movie. But Nebraska is about P- um, Bruce Dern. No, oh, that's about the state. I need to do the movie. Here we go. 2013, uh, Bruce Dern plays this aging, um, eight, you know, this man who's like in his 80s or 90s, I think, in the movie. maybe in the, Maybe just in his late 70s. But uh, but uh, his brother dies. No, no, no. Um, he, he thinks he ha- he wins a million dollar prize because of uh, a, a, a junk mail uh, thing. He said that you won a million dollars, and he has to go from Billings, Montana, and uh, to Lincoln, Nebraska, to pick up his money, his winnings. And he convinces his son, played by Will Forte to take him there and it you know we've got uh Stacey Keats, June Squibb, Bob Odenkirk, solid comedic cast but it's all very dry down-to-earth humor and it's ultimately a bonding story between a father and son as they go on this road trip for this you know er fool's errand but at the same time it's it's still just an excellently done and really and it goes to show that Bruce Dirt, while Clint Eastwood may not have been able to keep up his uh Craft in his old age. Bruce Dern is still as sharp as ever, and I, I'm interested to see how he does in *Chappaquiddick*. He's going to be playing the um, Kennedy family patriarch in *Chappaquiddick* with uh, Jason Clarke as Ted, Ted Kennedy and Ed Helms as one of the other Kennedys. It, it looks interesting. I'm excited. I'm interested. To I really hope they don't wheel out Bruce Dernies there, like the way um, the way that uh, poor Kirk Douglas was at I think the Golden Globes. Oof, that was bad. Uh, that being, said, but yeah, as it you know, if you haven't seen it yet, check it out. Check out Nebraska. It's it, it is one of Alexander Payne's best stuff. I think Sideways is his best movie overall that I've seen. I never saw about Schmidt. I think Sideways is his best, but this is a definite competitor. Uh, next up, eighty six. Another another Spielberg movie, Schindler's List. I think it goes without saying Spielberg really did. Well, to tackle the Holocaust, and this is the, like I, and what, like I was saying with a uh, reference to the Spielberg documentary I saw, Schindler's list was Spielberg coming to terms with his Jewish heritage, because he for the longest time, Spielberg was grew, I mean Spielberg grew up in the '60s, '60s, '50s and late '50s, early '60s, and at that time, you had to fit the American ideal mom dad apple pie baseball good white christian americans and so for the longest time spielberg even though even though his name is you know makes you think somebody who's jewish based on you know the so many of uh people of german and slavic descent having those names being of jewish descent over here in america uh spielberg never really thought he was more uh agnostic or Maybe even atheist for the longest time, and he never really worried about his his faith and his religion, and it wasn't and even or even his heritage, just his own heritage. And like he he remembers like a a you know one of his uh, Jewish grandparents talking about the kind of you know their family history. And it wasn't until Schindler's List that he just finally broke down and he read the book in like the eighties, and he wanted to do it then, but he wasn't quite sure. And so it took until the late, the early '90s for him to finally feel ready to tackle the Holocaust. It's a really interesting story. I think the make, I think Schindler's List, the you know, once and I feel like Spielberg is one of those guys who ha, will ha, who live those kind of lives to warrant its own film. Like I would be really interested to see a a biopic of Spielberg. I don't know who'd play him though. You'd have to. We probably have to wait until there's a until we, there's a point where Spielberg. I mean, you would be funny. Spielberg directs his own biopic and it's his final movie. He retires from filmmaking by directing his own biopic. I'm calling it now. I'm calling it now. If that's what happened, you heard it here first. Uh, yeah, Schindler's List Just an all-around a- 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 excellent movie that re- tackles a really, really rough subject matter. And uh, next up, 85 the 2016 live-action remake of The Jungle Book. Now, here's the thing. I love Phil Harris as Baloo. I think that first Disney movie, the first Disney Jungle Book is solid. The live-action Jungle Book showcased what Disney was capable of with these live-action remakes. A, a wide, diverse cast of, of actors, from Lupita Nyong'o as the wolf mother, he, of, of uh, Mowgli ben, B- ben Kingsley as Bagheera Idris Elba as Shere Khan Bill Murray as Baloo it's a solid collection of really good actors in these roles the only one that really didn't work for me was Scarlett Johansson as Ka but cause like even Christopher Walken as a Gigantopithecus which is this sort of giant orangutan I don't know if they made it up for the movie but him as a giant orangutan works in a a sort of like godfather sort of setting that they play it off as but the movie is does better than the original disney movie from the 60s it improves on it on just about every way shape and form and it showcases what these live action remakes are capable of don't remake Cinderella. Don't remake Mulan and the Li- Lion King, maybe. I'm interested, because the cast of the Lion King looks f- phenomenal. And I'm really interested to see, because John Favreau is doing the Lion King as well. I'm interested to see what he does with it. I'm interested to see where he goes with it. But, um, but yeah, the Jungle Book, you don't need to remake Beauty and the Beast. That was good on the first place. If you're going to remake, don't remake the stuff that people have already seen. Remake the Rescuers. Remake the Aristocats. Remake the stuff that people forget, and do it better the next time. You don't need to remake Alice in Wonderland. You did fine with that the first time. You don't need to remake Cinderella or or Beauty and the Beast. Or I guess maybe you could do Mulan. Maybe maybe I don't know. I'm not. I don't know. It's not coming out till next year. But mm-hmm. live action Little Mermaid. Look, that Little Mermaid was fine. What else are you gonna do with it? I don't know. Like, what, where are you really going to go with it now that you're doing it again? Uh, I mean, The Jungle Book set the precedent for here's how you take a, dec- a pretty good Disney movie, make it even better. And make it through the source material, make it more interesting. Just make it an all-around phenomenal movie. And, uh, and the more I think about it, the more I love that version of The Jungle Book. And it's probably going to be my definitive version to watch. Uh, number eighty four, GoldenEye. Quite possibly my favorite Bond movie. Um, it's the one I for, it, you never forget your first Bond. And for me, my first Bond was with GoldenEye. That was the one where we played it at home on the sixty four. That was the one where we went to theaters to see it with my parents. I think I was uh, seven at the time. I may not have gone seeing it in the theaters, but that's what you know. The nineties, the, the era of Pierce Brosnan, is what set the precedent for me seeing Bond movies with my dad. And it was a birthday present for him because they would always come out in November. And it was, like, always right around his birthday, too. So it was a great birthday present for him whenever they came out. But GoldenEye, I think, is the one that works best for me as a Bond film. I think Casino Royale is the best made. Maybe, although maybe Skyfall is up later on the list. I'm not sure. But, I, oh yeah, it is. Um, I'll talk about that in a bit. But... Um, for me personally, the fun kind of Bond, the classic genre of Bond before uh, Daniel Craig, the best of those is GoldenEye. At least for me personally. Uh, next up, eighty-three Psycho, the Hitchcock classic, the the precursor to the slasher genre, the, to show the real showcase of how Hitchcock could go from thriller to outright horror, and yeah. I don't think anything more needs to be said about that. Psycho, just an all-around really good movie. Uh, 82, Snowden. One that people seem to have also forgotten about, the biopic of Snowden tells this really compelling story that you see through uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Edward Snowden, going from the patriotic conservative American to a guy willing to call out his government for doing the wrong thing. And you see him... Go, you see what happens in his life to make him do what he does. And I think people really brush it aside when it really is a genuinely good uh, story to be, that is very much relevant even to this day. Snowden is just as relevant as today's headlines. There's a reason he still isn't allowed back yet because, his, you know, because the people in power don't like him blowing the whistle on them. So yeah, if you haven't already, go check out Oliver Stone's Snowden biopic. It's, def- it's probably one of his best, at least in the p- terms of the biopics he's done. Uh, although he maybe Born on the Fourth of July is better. I never saw that one. Next up, number 81, Green Room. A fairly recent one, uh, the la- one of the last movies besides Star Trek Beyond for the late Anton Yelchin. And it really showcased what he was capable of and what we lost with his untimely death. The fact that he could have been this really interesting actor, to because I mean he was he was the lead in the Fright Night remake, but that didn't really gain any traction. Here he's the lead singer in a punk band that gets held hostage by a bunch of neo Nazis in in the middle of nowhere in Oregon, and the leader of the neo Nazis is Patrick Stewart. Holy cow! Two Star Trek alums in one movie. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a really just ew, tense and taut thriller horror. I don't know if you call it a thriller or a horror movie, just because of the the way it's shot and how it's dep- depicting this these, this this whole situation. It works so well. If you haven't already and you have the stomach for it, go check out Green Room. It's one of my favorites. Another recent uh, movie <laughs> on my list, number eighty, is Fences. Fences is a is a play I had never seen performed live. The movie is shot essentially like you would imagine a more cinematic version of the play, but it's just and it, and it recreates the cast from one of the most recent uh, pre, uh, one of the most recent productions of the play, starring Denzel Washington and I believe Viola Davis. And the only one I think they recast was the son because the actual son got too old to play the part. But the whole the whole thing is a great, taught family drama, where you you see this you know you you see this imperfect guy and the struggles he goes through as he lives in poverty and as you know they're living in Pittsburgh in the fifties and they're not and the whole thing centers around him putting up this whole fence in their this new fence in their neighborhood and you see. The whole, the all of the kinds of stuff their family go through, and it's a really just all around solid story. And I think Denzel did a really good job with it as director as well. It's not like the most compelling direction in a movie, but it's But as a form of recreating this really good story from the play, I think he did a great job. Number seventy nine, The Godfather Part Two. Probably the best sequel, are you know, arguably that and Empire Strikes Back are the best sequels ever made. And I never got into the Godfather mythos, as it were. It's not one of my go-to's, but the Godfather Part Two is definitely a really mm. sorry, hungry Howie's there. It's, a, it's an excellent crime drama, and the way they are able to play off the rise, of, the you know, the continued rise of of um, Michael Corleone. With the with the initial rise of his father Vito Corleone, uh, in the form of Robert De Niro, is a great side piece. You know, you see these two characters as one continue to rises in the in the family business, and one builds the family business. It's a really great way. It it showcases what you how you do a really good prequel, as well as tell, continue a really great story through its sequel. Uh, number seventy-eight, another recent one: Kong Skull Island. My favorite King Kong movie, just an all-around fun, unabashed monster movie. You know, it's not perfect, but it, what it does, it's good at what it does. And what it does is just have a ball with these giant monsters fighting each other. You know, whereas Godzilla took itself almost too seriously, Kong, Kong Skull Island takes itself the right amount of seriously, where it's a cheesy B movie with an A movie budget. And it works amazing, and I really hope that's the tone they're going to take with the rest of the, this whole Legendary Pictures monster-verse. I can't wait for the next part. Because the next part's going to have Godzilla fighting King Ghidorah alongside Rodan and Mothra. And I'm dying to see how, they, how that works out. I just hope, once again, they stop with the self-serious tone and go with the big-budget monster movie we all m- want. Because I know that's what Pacific Rim Uprising is doing. I hope Pacific Rim Uprising is the kind of tone that Legendary takes with Godzilla, Destroy All Monsters. Uh, Number 77, Thank You for Smoking. A really great satire of the lobbying industry. And yeah, it is an industry. It's an industry in and of itself of these guys buying off influence in Congress. And you'd think these people would be unlikable. And they are, kind of. But you do get to see... It's a it's a really dark and funny and harsh look at the current state of money and politics in America, and I think it just stick even though it's all a decade old, it still holds up in the, you know in this current political climate. I think it's, I think it'll, it's one of those movies as a political dark satire that will never get old. I think it's always going to stay relevant. Uh, number seventy six, before mentioned, Skyfall. Quite possibly the best of the Bond movies. It's not perfect. Much like with The Dark Knight, there are plot holes here and there and things. But what helps is, you don't notice the plot holes because everything is done so stylishly and and it takes itself the right amount of serious. It's not so self-serious that it can't laugh at itself, but it's not so juvenile that it doesn't take it that you don't take it seriously as a movie universe it works to continue the harshness of the craig bond era while incorporating the classic bond tropes and reintroducing money penny we reintroducing q allowing for more gadgetry and whatnot but doing it in a way that feels more more true to the craig era of bond that we've gotten i don't know what what they're going to do after craig leaves bond because he does want to leave bond I don't know if they want to continue with the serious tone or they want to return because they did this before. Timothy Dalton was the dark, gritty tone that Bond took right before rebooting with Pierce Brosnan and going back to the more Connery, Roger Moore era. I'm curious, now that Craig has proven gritty Bond can work, are they going to continue that style of Bond or are they going to go back to the more retro pastiche style fun spy thriller spy action romp i'm curious to see what they do after uh craig leaves i think this next one the sequel to specter is going to be his last number 75 the korean original old boy i can't believe i have to differentiate between the two i never did see the spike lee remake i don't know if it's any good but the korean old boy whoo prepare for a rough one the korean the korea loves to showcase what they're capable of in their uh, they don't hold back in a lot of places, and Old Boy is just a genuinely, you know, rough and tumble, um, dark action movie where it's it's basically a revenge-style thriller a la the seventies with some stuff like Charles Bronson, but it's done in a, such a stylish and interesting way that you can't be helped but be, you know, amazed by what you're seeing on screen. Old Boy is a be- is one of the best showcases of Korean cinema that I've ever seen. And, uh, I don't, and, uh, I don't know, I, I and, uh, the guy, I think the, this is the same guy who did Old Boy That did, uh, like, uh, Okja and, um, Snowpiercer, let me double check, uh, 2003, directed by Park Chan-wook, I think, it's, I think it's definitely the best of his Vengeance trilogy. Um, I don't know about Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance or Lady Vengeance. It's been a while since I saw them. I remember they, were, they weren't as good as old Boy. Um, yeah. He did a Snowpiercer. Although, why isn't... Oh, I thought Snowpiercer... Snowpiercer of the Handmaiden, The Truth Beneath. Chanwook Park. Did he not do... Why isn't Okja on here? I thought he did Okja. No, Okja is Bang ho who was the screenwriter, who was the maker of The Host, that's why. Um, no, he did Snowpiercer. Wait. Okay, wait. I'm confused. I'm confusing myself. Snowpiercer was directed by Bong jun ho produced by Park Chan-wook. Okay, there's the difference. Park Chan-wook produced Snowpiercer, it was directed by Bong Jun-ho. So the Old Boy director produced the movie, the Okja director directed the movie. There's there's the key difference. Okay. So yeah, uh there's where the you know the two the two you know the two converge and then diverge uh back to their own respective careers. So yeah, uh, old boy probably one of the best movies to come out of Korea, if not arguably the best. Number 74, uh, a, a underrated comedy, and probably one of the best comic adaptations out there, uh, American Splendor. Uh, American Splendor is the half biopic, half adaptation of the cult co- comic book writer and artist, um, uh, crap, why well, can't I remember his name? He's a Cleveland native. Um, American Splendor uh, film. Uh, Harvey Picard. That's it. Uh, So uh, you've got not only Paul Giamatti as Harvey Picard. uh, You've got Donald Logue portraying a version of Harvey Picard. You've got Picard as himself. Uh, You've got Hope Davis as his wife Joyce. You've got Joyce as herself. You've got uh, Judah Freelander as his buddy Toby. And then Toby as himself. So, I mean you've got this it's this great amalgamation where they even do um animated versions of the style of uh of uh the co- the peak you know of American Splendor. The art the illustrations done by uh um Gregory Budget and uh I think Picard anima- drew it in, uh drew it himself. Or maybe uh who I forget who drew uh American Splendor comics. Uh but it covers uh you know the both the history of how Picar went from being this just normal, average uh, uh, office worker in Cleveland, Ohio, to being a cult figure in comic books—you know—who's um, the artist for a bunch of these? I know Robert Crumb did some. Uh, Gary Dumb and Frank Stack are the main ones. So they even do it in that sort of like that sort of like a uh, harsh, harsh indie comic style that Crumb was known for. Um but uh and oh Josh Hutcherson yeah this is one of the first uh uh feature this is the first feature film appearance of uh po- Polar Express actor and star and star of the Hunger Games Josh Hutcherson uh his first appearance on film was as a kid dressed as Robin in a flashback uh to Harvey Pekar's childhood Fun facts so yeah American splendor is a is a beautiful movie. If you haven't seen it yet, go see it. I especially love it because it's about a local hero, a local uh, celebrity, as it were. But it, it's, Harvey P. Carr's life is so interesting that you're almost disserv- doing yourself a disservice by not going to see it at some point, seeking it out. It should be available on HBO. It was produced by them. But if you haven't seen it yet, go seek it out. Uh, number 73, the only direct video movie on this entire list, Justice League Doom personally I, I may not be the best made of the direct to video dc animated movies justice league doom in my opinion is my it is my fate well in my opinion yes it is my favorite justice league doom is my personal favorite of those dc animated uh movies like i never read the comics for uh Amer- you know Amer- All- all-star superman or the dark Knight. like i wasn't in, i didn't grew up I didn't grow up with uh, the Dark Knight Return, so I wasn't really I didn't really care about that or Batman Year One uh, getting adaptations. But uh, I think while a nice my favorite, my second favorite is Superman versus the Elite because that's how you do a really good Superman story and deal with his with his with his power and acknowledge the harsh realities of life around him. Justice League Doom is just an all around great justice league story it feels like a continu not only because the cast of the animated justice league is returning for their in there is reprising their roles for the movie as well as Kari payton as uh, cyborg but justice league doom is just an all around great justice league story and it's one of the best voice acted it's one of the best told it's just an all around great movie it's one of the it's, once again it's an, it's another one of those movies that can just pop in any day of the year and sit down and enjoy myself. Uh, basic premise there is uh, Batman had created like fail safes to take down the Justice League uh, in case something were to go wrong. And all of that information got leaked to a team of super villains who then seek, go out to destroy the Justice League. And it's up to Cyborg to help bring, help re, you know, Cyborg, between Cyborg and Batman, it's up to them to re, you know, to undo uh, the damage that was done by Batman's, precautions and i just all all, all all around just a phenomenal justice league story and i'm really i just I, I i i'm i had to go out and own it myself because i need to be able to have it on me in case i want i need to see it number 72 another recent entry shin godzilla i think aside from the original Godzilla, the shin godzilla is the best godzilla movie it's just and once again tackles something much like the original tackled nuclear proliferation and nuclear testing. Shin Godzilla tackles Japanese isolationism and bureaucracy. Fun fact, Shin Godzilla is more about Japanese bureaucracy and isolationism than it is about anything else. And it's also a reference to the Fukushima disaster. So Shin Godzilla is the most socially relevant Godzilla movie since the original Gojira. Although you could argue that Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster was also socially relevant. But at the same time, it's a cheesy B-movie saying, Pollution is bad! You know, it might as well be a precursor to Captain Planet. But yeah, Shin Godzilla, just an all-around phenomenal Godzilla movie. And it showcases what you can do with the character and keep it relevant to any number of themes. Godzilla can be about anything if you have the right mindset to it. Even... Japanese bureaucracy. Number 71. Not not as high as a lot of people, but The Iron Giant. Ju- I, it, once again, Iron Giant is a great movie. There's no arguing that. It's just not one of my personal favorites. I mean, it's, on, it's in my top 100, but it doesn't really go that high because once again, it's not, even though I didn't, even though it was my era growing up, I never saw it growing up. It, I never fell in love with it the way a lot of kids did. And... It's a good movie. It's a damn good movie. It still holds up after all, after almost a decade. We're about to... No. 20 years. We're about to hit... Next year will be the 20th anniversary, I believe, of The Iron Giant. So, it's a good movie. There's no arguing that. It's just not... You know, it just didn't hit me personally the way it did a lot of people. Uh, number 70, the DreamWorks movie, Rise of the Guardians. It sounds terrible. It's an Avengers-style team-up movie between the the uh public domain characters of santa claus the easter bunny jack frost the tooth fairy and the sandman fighting oh god what's his name uh uh what what oh, god how do they refer to the villain in this movie um what's uh, the sa- the sandman there's a sandman who's a a silent character but um who is julop pitch Black, the Boogeyman. So you've got a you've got an Avengers-style team-up movie origins of Jack Frost teaming up with Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, the Sandman, and the Tooth Fairy, and they all f- try to fight the Boogeyman. It shouldn't work, especially since they wake the Tooth Fairy, a hummingbird. They make Santa Claus this weird Russian stereotype. And they make the Easter Bunny Australian. While Jack Frost is basically, you know, chip fodder for Elsa from Frozen. <laughs> and yet, it all works. It all surprisingly works. Rise of the Guardians is the little movie from DreamWorks that should have been bigger than it is. It should have been the success, not home. If anything deserves a DreamWorks, you know, direct to a Netflix series, it's not Turbo, it's not Home, it's not The Croods, it's Rise of the Guardians. I want to see the this Avengers-style team-up series of the Guardians protecting kids from the uh, from the likes of the Boogeyman and other childhood terrors. Include more folklore, have them fight the Baba Yaga, have them fight, you know, the Kappa, go to Japan and fight the Kappa, have them meet other, you know, kind of like how, um, Static Shock went to Africa and met Anansi, have them go to Africa and meet Anansi, have them go to South America, find a, find another guardian there, make them form, find them, form a, an Avenger, like a a Justice League international style team of hero, guardians on all continents and, p- and have them fight cryptids. Make that series DreamWorks. We deserve that. The people deserve that. I'm also kind of pissed because it's a Guillermo del Toro production. And it really shows in the design work. And I'm just pissed that it didn't do as well as it should have. So number 69. <laughs> nice. Aladdin. Uh, once again, another really solid Disney movie. Most people would write Aladdin as their favorite Disney movie and and or the best of the Disney animation. Uh, But, eh, I mean, I had fun. It's one of my favorite movies growing up. It's just not one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, there's a reason it's a lot lower down the list because there's a lot better movies before it, you know. But it's still a solid movie. You know, it's another one that I could easily pop in and have a good time Uh, I don't know how good the stage play is, and I'm really trepidatious in the live-action remake. So, we'll wait and see. Number 68, another Brad Bird movie, The Incredibles. The Fantastic Four movie that we all deserved, but it had to come from Pixar and Brad Bird. Um, I don't know how good the sequel's going to be. I really hope it holds up alongside the original. Pixar sequels, of Cars 2 notwithstanding, are usually pretty good. You know, if they have nothing else, they hold up alongside the original if they aren't better in the form of, like, Toy Story 2. You know, I, you could argue, I, I've, heard, I've heard the argument that Toy Story 2 is better than Toy Story 3. I think in terms of animation, Toy Story 3 is better just because there's more polish to it. But I get the argument. It's a, it's a, it, there's an argument to be made there. Uh, at the same time, you know, they're all, all the, the entire Toy Story is probably the best, you know, no. ooh, That's a good question. What is the best Pixar movie? Hmm. That's something to think about. Uh, Anyway, yeah, The Incredibles. Amazing superhero deconstruction. And I I am really interested to see what they do with it now in the era of superheroes. Because, like, in the mid-2000s, there was, like, what? The Spider-Man movies and the X-Men movies. And even those weren't all that great culturally. This was pre-Marvel Studios and The Avengers. Before Marvel Studios dominated the box office... There wasn't. There was still kind of a you know a, 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 a scorched earth style in the wake of a scorched, scorched earth in the wake of Batman and Robin. Things were not great for superheroes in the mid two thousands. This is all I think. Incredibles came out the same year as Daredevil, or the year after Daredevil. So I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. Imagine Incredibles as a deconstruction of superheroes nowadays. I really hope that's what they're going for. They haven't shown us anything yet. It's just a teaser now, and, I kind of, and I'm kind of anxious to see what the actual premise is. I think, I, honestly, I would love to see them tackle, like, superheroes are back in fashion, and everybody wants to be a superhero, but how do these, you know, how do, so how do these parents deal with the fact that their kids are growing, you know, now that superheroes are big again, what do they do? You know, how does that, go, you know, when is that shoe, other shoe going to drop for them, you know? Uh, what are the down, you know and point out all of the downsides of the current era of superheroes? That's what a good movie would do. I really hope that's what we're going to get out of the Incredibles. I hope it's just not going to be a lackluster superhero sequel, you know. Uh, but we will have to wait and see. Next up, number sixty-seven, How to Train Your Dragon, arguably one of the best DreamWorks movies uh, ever made. The best thing to come out of DreamWorks, and it's it, it's not perfect. They're Vikings. The kids have American accents, especially like Southern California accents. And the adults all have Scottish accents. None of this makes any damn sense, but I don't care because it's really well animated and it's absolutely gorgeous. You know, it's it's a wonderful coming of age story with real stakes involved in it. Or, um, yeah. How to Train Your Dragon. Number 66, Hell or High Water. Another recent entry. Uh, Yeah, just an all-around great crime drama, and tackling a subject that's very, you know, very, uh, you know, present in in today's society. The idea that things are uh, things are, you know, poverty, how the way poverty affects people, and how people are driven to extremes in order to just basically survive in the wake of. This economic collapse and how the modern, you know, small town America is being left behind and it's left in the dust and how people are making do with that. So, yeah, Hell or High Water, really great movie. Number 65, Let the Right One In. As much as I enjoyed the American remake with Chloe Moretz, I think the original Swedish version is the superior version. Because they're willing to go a lot darker with it than American audiences will allow. And, or at least American studios will allow. I'm sure the American audience does don't care. But yeah, it's, it. Let the Right One In is one of the best vampire stories. I don't know if... Uh, I'll have to look back and see if um, uh, The Maven of the Eventide. Uh, Elsa. Elisa? Elisa. Elise? Elisa. Uh, Makeover Fairy from The Nostalgic Chick. Uh, Maven of the Even Tide. Uh, Maven reviews, I think, is what she goes by on YouTube now. I, th- I want to say she covered this. She must have, but I have to go back and check. I'd love to hear her opinions on it. Just an all-around great vampire movie, uh, and it's like a great romance too. Ultimately, you know, it's a great story of young romance, <laughs> and um, yeah, the, the American remake isn't a bad version. It just isn't as great. Ultimately, it's just that, remaking that version, but with English as the main voice, as the main uh, language instead of Swedish. Uh, number sixty-five. Uh, oh no, that was sixty-five. Number sixty-four. Nightcrawler. A down-and-dirty story of the American dream, making what I, you know, making your way downtown, walking fast, faces past, and your homebound. Uh, um, Jake Gyllenhaal showcases how insane he can get in his performances as he plays this guy who goes just all out unhinged in order to make money as a essentially uh, a, a, a a paparazzo, you know, recording footage of crimes to sell to local news stations. It's a dark and twisted movie. And I love every second of it. Sadly, the guy didn't. Strike lightning twice with uh, Roman J Israel Esquire last year, but yeah, they can't all be winners. Number sixty-three, Spielberg's back again with Jaws. You know, I th- never got a bad feeling about sharks from this movie, mainly because I'm just as fascinated. I'm just fascinated by sharks. I love learning the actual facts, but the movie, I, there's no denying, the Jaws is an all-around amazing movie, and it really showcases what you're capable, what what a director can be capable of. In terms of uh, you know what with what he's given and Jaws could have been a failure, but Spielberg managed to uh, Spielberg and his whole team managed to cobble together something that worked amazing and skyrocketed his career. It's there's another movie there's, there's who's thinking of could do could be its own movie just with how insane it was, and you could do an entire leg of the Spielberg bio. Actually, come to think of it, a Spielberg biopic wouldn't work. You wouldn't want to do it in a one movie. It would have to be like a mini series almost, like a five episode mini series depicting his entire arc. Maybe make it six. Six or seven, that may be better. Um, yeah, 63, Jaws. Number 62, Hardcore Henry. From the Russian guy behind those uh, first person POV action movie uh, YouTube videos uh, comes Hardcore Henry. And it's a fun, uh, p- first-person POV action movie. It works. It's a lot of fun. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. It's fun. It's not, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of stupid, but it works. You know, it's a fun kind of stupid. It's like, it's like you're watching somebody play a, a play a video game or something, or you're you all, you know, you are the action hero in this movie, and it's fun. Uh, number sixty-one, Edge of Tomorrow. You know. So many people. uh, Happy Death Day and uh, whatever that other one was before I fall or something. um, They've been trying to do the uh, Groundhog's Day repeat repeated life sort of uh, thing uh, to to more diminishing returns. Edge of Tomorrow slash Live Die Repeat slash All You Need Is Kill whatever you want to call it is 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 doing that in a fun way. It it's able to take this sort of Video game respawn idea with action sci-fi and it works really well. It's at a, you know it's 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 doing the Groundhog's Day story, but in a way that's a lot that's really fun and interesting to watch. And shout out to that. And I really and they seem to be doing a sequel. We'll have to see if that comes out. Uh, but what, but uh, I like if nothing else, the first one. No matter what they call it, it's a good movie. Number 60, Ratatouille. Uh, Yeah, it's a fun Pixar movie. Uh, Really underrated, I think. I don't know how much people talk about uh, Ratatouille. But yeah, it's it's a really good Pixar movie. It's a a nice showcase of the kind of stuff they can do that is the reason they're teamed up with Disney by now. You know, there's stuff like this. And the next one, number 59, WALL-E. They are the kind of movies that Disney used to make for the longest time, and... Unfortunately, Disney seemed to take over most of the Pixar staff to, over, to, over to the main Disney side. And Pixar has been, shat, been saddled with sequels. Uh, which, is, which kind of stinks because Pixar can do better. You just need to allow them to do better. And hopefully that'll change sometime soon. We'll get the sequels out of the way and we can do some genuinely good movies like, like they used to. Number 58, Ex Machina. A genuinely good sci-fi movie. Not perfect. Once again, not a lot of these are perfect movies. But they are really good. In my opinion. And Ex Machina is this great sort of. Almost Twilight Zone episode. Where a guy is tricked by a. Very lifelike feminine robot. To help her escape her. Really perverted creator. And it's an all around really good movie. And I'm interested to see how. That director does with his next movie, *Annihilation*, coming out later this year. I'm excited for that. Uh, I think he's a great director, and *Ex Machina* shows that. Number fifty-seven, *Star Wars: A New Hope*. Fun, pulpy action. Not the best. Let's be real, people. *Star Wars* isn't high art. It's it's a fun, pulp action, sci-fi fantasy. Just let it. Just have fun with it. Jeez, Uh, people take things so seriously. Number 56, Labyrinth, which i sad to say I missed when it came back to theaters recently. It's it's fun... I, I, I miss when Jim Henson made movies. Not Jim Henson... Well, Henson specifically, but the Henson Studio. There's supposed to be one coming out later this year from a, one of their uh, subsidiaries uh, that that's, does more adult stuff with puppets. Adult being more mature themes. And I hope they do... I hope that comes out. I hope that we aren't, you know, that they do, you know, finish it and it comes out in theaters. Or nothing else. Comes out on Netflix or something. Comes out on Amazon Video. I don't care. I want to see it. I miss the days when we had Henson making stuff for film. And I wish they would go back to that. Allow Henson to tell these kinds of fantasy stories. It would probably be cheaper than using CGI. Just have fun with it. You know? I miss that. Also, David Bowie's crotch is just, I mean... Also he's the master of the fushigi. Uh number 55, the best thing to come out of Blue Sky Studios, The Peanuts movie. I've been a long time fan of the Peanuts growing up and that movie hit me in all of the right nostalgia spots. It got every aspect of the Peanuts down pat. It even worked in a CG setting. If they don't do a sequel to The Peanuts movie, I'm going to be sad because they really showcase what they are capable of with that property. And it really helps that, I think, the Schultz family was involved in the production of it. So I hope they return to that and Blue Sky becomes the studio to bring out more Peanuts material. Because I think that could be their real franchise. Not Ice Age, not Rio. Make Peanuts your franchise. Why not? What else you got going for you? Number 54, the original 70s version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I guess it isn't. uh, That's the only version of... Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory because it's technically called Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, but I digress. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, just an all-around classic. I think anybody who grew up seventies and afterward saw this, and it's just it still really holds up well. It's really dark and twisted the more you think about it, but it's still just a lighthearted and really effervescent story, and it's it showcases just how great of an actor Gene Wilder was as a comedian and. Yeah, Willy Wonka and the Chalka Factory. There, ain't, there really isn't anything else like it. Even that Tim Burton version was kind of weird. It was more creepy than anything else. Nothing as fun. Uh, when you can handle the creepiness, just make it fun. Jeez, have some fun, Tim Burton. What's the matter with you? Number 53, Cabin in the Woods. Uh, a great deconstruction of horror. I, I Cabin in the Woods is another movie where I would love to see the office style um not specifically the office format but like a behind the scenes style of that whatever you know whatever that organization is called in cabin in the woods i love that idea i'd love to see the day to day machinations of those people as well as showcasing all the other times they've done these horror style um uh stories so why, you know, whoever is behind that, whoever, the, you know, at the studio who owns Cabin in the Woods, do that. Do that thing. We deserve that, damn it. Number 52, The Prince of Egypt. One of, the, you know, a showcase, you know, a reminder that, hey, when DreamWorks did 2D animation, it was actually really good. And it was probably one of the best religious movies ever made, honestly. I haven't seen Last Temptation of Christ as much as I like Philomena Prince of Egypt actually makes the, you know, the religious, religious text engaging and dynamic. And yeah, Prince of Egypt, even though, he, he, you know, as much as it was banned in Muslim countries for depicting a religious figure, uh, which, you know, is they right? Still, Prince of Egypt is an all-around just phenomenal movie and it's probably the best thing to be made about the Bible, if we're going to be honest. Uh, number fifty-one, Kingsman: The Secret Service. Barring that last scene, that last scene of like quid pro quo, you know, t- male like sex sexualization of a princess. That bit was eh, we didn't need that, man. Could have left that out. That felt like that felt like that felt so gratuitous and was unnecessary. Um, but otherwise, the movie is a great parody of. Of uh, the James Bond franchise. And those style tropes. Like as much as Austin Powers. Is a, is a parody of, of James Bond. I think Kingsman has, does a better job. Of having a fun action packed style Bond parody. You know. And it's more. Again, I don't know if we call it parody or satire. But it, it's still like a great send up. To the more to the Moore era of Bond. You know. Uh, number 50. A Monster Calls. This one slipped under the radar. If you haven't seen it, go see it. A Monster Calls is a great movie. Uh, Liam Neeson stars as a fictional like tree monster. It's basically like Groot's daddy. <laughs> For all intents and purposes. But it's a great, beautiful, touching story about dealing with loss. And the monster tells this this kid, whose mom is dying of cancer, these three stories. And they all help him... To, you know, the, the, all of these stories help him to come to terms with the, with his mother's sickness and the fact that he might lose her. You know, it's a great story and it, it's a great story about grief and loss. And if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's really good. Number 49, The Thing. Original 1981, John Carpenter, 1982. 1981 or 1980, I think it's 82. Uh, But the original John Carpenter is The Thing. Great. Once again, another showcase of how you can do a remake and do something even better than the original. Uh, The Thing is a remake of the 50s era commie, uh, anti-communist sort of horror uh, uh, Twilight Zone style story about uh, an alien coming to Earth, landing in Antarctica, and taking over other people's bodies. What, what, was a, what was an obvious, you know, Red Scare stor- sort of horror movie, you know, it was really cheesy and not very well uh, executed. Like, it, it's along the lines of The Fly. And that's why uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly and John Carpenter's The Thing showcase how you can take something that was cheesy and, uh, you know, of its era and do something even better with it. And yeah, The Thing I think is even better than The Fly, although I still need to see The Fly. But I think The Thing is a, it's a great showcase for practical effects. It's a great horror movie because there are all these guys co- trying to deal with this monster in their midst and they can't, don't know who to trust. So instead of it being about communism, quote unquote communism, uh, essentially the Soviets more than communism because it's not about actual communism. It was more about Sovi- the Soviet Union. And their power. You know, it's the same thing with like China now. Um, But I I digress, that's more history and politics. But instead of it being about that, it's just about paranoia and you don't know who to trust. And yeah, it's a genuinely great horror movie. You know, it's a classic, and even when they tried to remake it, they couldn't do it justice. Uh, Number 48. Disney's *The Hunchback of Notre Dame*. Hear me out. Disney's *Hunchback* has the best score of any Disney movie. Fight me on that. You can, you know, you can say, "Oh, this has a better song." This is this. This is it. No, *Hellfire*, *Heaven's Light*, *God Help the Outcasts*, and the climactic song of the choir singing in actual Latin, full-on Gregorian chant-style choir. Not even, no, it's not a Gregorian chant. That's earlier in the movie. Uh, by the way, this movie has Gregorian chant. Uh, but the choir singing in in actual Latin as Hun- as Quasimodo swings down from the cathedral to rescue Esmeralda. Best score Disney has ever produced. Fight me. Uh, on number two, it's a great, you know, it's a toned down, but ultimately solid adaptation of the source material. Like, you've there, I don't know how much better you could do as a. As a I mean, here's the thing. Lindsay covered this in her sto- in her video about the Disney quasi Disney Hunchback. The, initial, the original uh, Victor Hugo novel is very dry. It's not very cinematic. So of course you need to make changes to make it cinematic. The one thing going against the Hunchback of Notre Dame is the gargoyles, which they could have gotten away with by saying that they're in his head, but they never quite, you know, make that point. They don't make it a point that they are actually, because they interact with the actual world around them. So they can't be in his head. They have to be real. If they had kept it so that these guys were in his head, that would make sense. And that would make it even better. That would make it, that would be an improvement. Hunchback, if they kept the score and carried it over, could be, it would make for an even better live action remake why are you wasting your time on Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin when you could be remaking stuff that could be improved upon? Yeah, hacks. Anyway, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Just all around great Disney movie, wholly underrated, only because of its misgivings, And that's because of Disney at the time. You know, thinking they had the cram and the Genie and everything. Number 47, Kung Fu Panda. Great send-up of old kung fu movies, well animated. The sequels aren't as great, but they're still pretty good. The original is still the best. Just an all-around fun action comedy. Number uh, 46, one from last year, The Shape of Water. Yep, made it on my 100 list. It's not all the way at the top, but yeah, Shape of Water. All, just, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Yeah, yeah just a, a really good romance good sci-fi, good everything, you know? Uh, go check it out if you haven't already. It's, it's, it is it's that good. Uh, 45, The Book of Life. Well, I don't know if I put Coco higher. Uh, I, I want to keep... I, I wrote this, made this list out and didn't really go back to it. Uh, but I do love The Book of Life. It was the first one to really try to tell this story about Los Mortos. And it... And it's from a team of Mexican animators and producers. And so there's something more authentic to it. At the same time, it's just more cheesy, fun. You know, it's, a, it's an adventure movie, whereas Coco is a family drama. So there's a difference between the two. But Book of Life is still a really good movie. It's a great site. It's a great companion piece to Coco. So check out both. Uh, number 44, Swiss Army Man. Another underrated classic. Daniel Radcliffe is a corpse that talks to Paul Dano and is able to fart his way like a a jet ski. It is Bug Nuts Gonzo, and I love it. It's beautiful. One of my favorite movies of all time. If you haven't checked it out already, go do yourself a favor and watch the madness. (laughs) Go check it out. Swiss Army Man is bananas, but it's also a touching story about this guy dealing with the fact Dealing with his own unrequited love. It's a, it's a, it's a nice touching story in that sense. Uh, but yeah, Swiss Army Man. It's, it's, it's insane and I love it. Number 43, Captain Underpants. The first epic movie. Yes. Yes this, is, yes, this is higher up than most of my other stuff from DreamWorks. Yes. I accept this. I accept the fact that Captain Underpants has topped a lot of Pixar's movies and most of DreamWorks movies. Yes. What are you gonna do about it? <laughs> Number forty-two, Pixar's Inside Out. Not all Pixar's. Captain Underpants is on top of all Pixar's movies because Inside Out is is just undeniably a really good movie about dealing with your emotions. Pixar made a movie about dealing with your emotions, and it was a beautiful, nice coming-of-age story on top of that. Just, just this is what I want from my Pixar. Quit making them a sequel factory, Disney. Uh, number forty-one, The Krampus, or rather Krampus, uh, a horror movie about one of my f- new favorite Christmas characters. Another one to put in the Rise of the Guardians TV series, The Krampus. Uh, that's it's pronounced Krampus, but it's a uh, spelled C, it's spelled Krampus, you know, with an A. So. I pronounced it correctly, but yeah. That's what, so yeah. Uh, Krampus. A great Christmas horror movie. Better than Black Christmas. Better than Silent Night, Deadly Night. Just a wonderful Christmas set horror movie. And, (laughs) oof. It it really stood out to me when I saw it. And it was one of my favorites the year it came out. Uh, Number 40, Galaxy Quest. The best Star Trek parody we will probably ever get. And yeah. I don't know what else to say. I mean, I don't know anybody who hates Galaxy Quest, even though it's not well talked about. I don't know anybody who outright hates it. Because it, it, if you love Star Trek and you or even if you like Star Trek, it's a great parody of like, you know, convention culture, nerd culture, star, you know, entertain the entertainment industry. It's it's a really just all-around great sci-fi comedy. Number 39 War for the Planet of the Apes. One of my favorite from last year, and yeah, there's a reason it ended up on my top 100 list, because it's a damn good movie. Probably the best thing we've seen from the Planet of the Apes entire series. You know, (laughs) this whole prequel trilogy has been phenomenal, and I'm really curious to see where it goes from here. So yeah, War for the Planet of the Apes, number 39. Number 38, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I mentioned it before in my Peter Rabbit review, but yeah, 2 Framed Roger Rabbit is still an iconic piece of family entertainment. It's a great, it's a great noir story. It's a great comedy. It's it's a great parody of like the tune culture and the, and the forties. It has a great, you know, it has a it's a great commentary on the cap, on cap on, on this sort of like idea of capitalism overtaking the you know the public um, necessity. It's it, it, you know it's a great movie. And, and, and I don't think there's any arguing that. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Who doesn't love that movie? Number 37. Kubo and the Two Strings. While it would have been nice to have a more diverse voice cast, the movie itself is still a phenomenal movie. It's one of the most beautifully animated from Leica, And I I, I think I put it higher than Paranorman. I don't even know if Paranorman made it onto my list. But yeah, Kubo and the Two Strings is just a gorgeous movie showcases what Laika is good at and is a nice send up to sort of Japanese style mythos uh storytelling uh I'll have to talk with uh my buddy my uh, my co-host Mike on Majiday if we can cover Kuba and the Two Strings maybe as like a American version of Japanese American interpretation of Japanese culture month or something I don't know uh number 36 Robocop the original original 80s version Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. Uh, once again, Paul Verhoeven, I think it's probably Paul Verhoeven's best movie. Uh, you could argue, you could make arguments for like Total Recall or even Starship Troopers has its, uh, you know, merits, but RoboCop is a genuinely great pastiche of capitalist, uh, of what it takes back from corporate capitalist society and of just really cheesy action movies. It, did, it, didn't, it, did, it, it, it unfortunately succumbed to its own uh, cheesiness uh, when it left the hands of Verhoeven. I think it left the hands of Verhoeven. I don't think he was involved in the second one. I know he wasn't involved in the third one. But yeah, that first one is still an iconic 80s B-movie. You know? And if you love sort of 80s B-action, go check out RoboCop. Number 35, The Lion King. Yeah, it's it's it is one of Disney's best, and as much as it's like, oh, it's Bambi and Bambi meets Hamlet in Africa, it's still a good movie. I mean, that's a still a good story, of course. You know, why wouldn't you want to tell something sort of Shakespearean? And uh, yeah, as much as it is arguably a ripoff of uh, Kimba the White Lion, if Kimba the White Lion was more available to us, maybe they could, maybe they would, maybe it would be a bigger deal. But sadly. Nobody's making Kimba available to us. Is Disney blocking Kimba the White Lion because they'll know they know they ripped it off and they don't want the American public to know? I would do an Alex Jones impression here, but I have no idea. Uh, seventeen seventy six That's one quote from his I know. Uh, uh is, is, is Disney blocking Kimball the White Lion from the American public? So that they, because they know they ripped it off. I forget what his... Uh, t- I know Rush has ditto heads. I forget what Alex Jones calls his uh, dumbass listeners. Uh, so yeah, um, Lion King. Still a good movie, rip-off or otherwise. Sometimes rip-offs can be fun, you know? Not a, you know just because something's a rip-off doesn't make it a bad thing. Uh, number 34. The original Gojira, 1954. Still holds up. Still a showcase of what a classic monster movie is capable of, even you know. And it can be take. And it can take itself a little more seriously, because it. And, but it would still be a really just all around good movie. Period. You know, it's the one that started it all, and it and it still holds up. I think after all of these years. Number thirty three, Disney Zootopia. I will not grant it the same thing that so many others have, that it's a great commentary on race relations. It is a good commentary on race relations. It is not a one-to-one correlation of race because Predators are not, it's not, Predators can't really, Predators are, the Predators in Zootopia are more like just a generic minority. They don't represent, say, you know, orcs as black people in Bright. There's not a one-to-one. Zootopia does a more prejudice. It's not about racism. It's more about prejudice. And so you've got the herbivores who outnumber the carnivores. And the carnivores are not one race. Carnivores are not a singular racial entity. They're just a, you know, a, you know they, they just speak, you know, like because that's the thing. Carnivores can be any race. They're just the minority. So they're in the minority group. And it's about more about prejudice than outright racism. I think that's the key. And I think that's why it works better. It's not an out... Because, I mean, I know there was a lot of backlash when it initially came out of people saying, like, oh, look at this movie about co- commenting on race relations. And it's like, no, the Predators don't correlate to a race in humanity, you know? They're not the black people, like, orcs in Bright. Oof. Oof, Bright was so poorly written. Um... They're not, you know, Mexicans. They're not the poor, even. They're just the minority group. And, you know, it's just a story about prejudice. But that doesn't mean it's a great commentary on race relations. It's more of a commentary on prejudice. Because, once again, most of the cops are predators. There's a lot of predator cops, except for, like, big, tough animals like elephants, buffaloes, and rhinos. The prejudice is against a small herbivorous animal, the rabbit. So the cops have prejudice against rabbits, and they call her a diversity hire. Meanwhile, the minor, the other minority group in the in the actual town of Zootopia, the carnivores, are treated like a lot of people treat minority groups, especially when they're you know when they're depicted as the bad group. So it's about prejudice more than it is about racial relations. That being said. It's still a damn good movie, too. It's just a great all-around movie. I know uh, Jello o Apocalypse called it his favorite. and uh, Well, I think he called it the best, but it's definitely his favorite Disney movie. And yes, yes, it's good. Yes, it is very good. And, and immediately after seeing it, I wanted the Disney XD animated series of Zootopia. I wanted that. There are all these TV series I want, and nobody is giving them to me. I demand satisfaction. Number 32, The Nice Guys. Another recent release. Uh, the Nice Guys is a great, is Shay, is I think Shane Black. Pretty sure it's Shane Black, yes. Shane Black back, you know, coming off of Iron Man 3, which is kind of a disappointment, not all that great ultimately. Him coming back and saying, screw it, 70s buddy cop movie. Let's do this. And yes, two private eyes, uncover a secret uh, cover-up of the murder of a porn star. And it's about the environment, and it's, it's just a great retro action comedy. Nice, guys. I could watch it any day of the week. It is Shane Black on top, on the top of, at the top of his form. Really hope that Predator movie he does is good. I have high hopes for that. Uh, I think that's coming out this year. Uh, number 31, Last Year's Logan. The best, mm, yes, the best X-Men movie ever made. You know, Deadpool may be higher up on the list. I'll admit that now. But Logan is the, or is, objectively, the best X-Men movie that we have ever seen. It's a great, because not only is it a great story about the X-Men characters, and especially Wolverine, it is an all-around good movie. It's a great Western. It's a great, um, kind of like, uh, drama. You know, there's a reason... Patrick Stewart got nominated for uh, Best Actor by the Critics' Choice Award because he was that good in this movie. This is a really all-around good movie, and it definitely deserves all the accolades it's been getting. I mean, it's got nominated by the Academy Awards. That's, we, haven't, we haven't seen a superhero outside of, a superhero movie outside of the technical awards get nominated for something since The Dark Knight. You know? That's, 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 that deserves... Also, Star Trek Beyond got robbed. Why was it given to the Suicide Squad? Suicide Squad didn't have that best makeup. Star Trek Beyond's makeup was way better than Suicide Squad. Screw you, Oscars. Uh, number 30, Her. I don't know how many people saw this movie, but it's a great commentary. It's a Spike Jones movie. I think it's his latest one. I don't know how many he's done recently. Let me double check. Uh, but it's about uh, Joaquin Phoenix as a... Uh, sort of introverted uh, guy who gets a new um, AI. He basically meets his own. He basically downloads a new seri- a new o- operating system for his for his uh, computer. Comes with its own version of Siri, voiced by Scarlett Johansson, and they develop an actual romantic relationship. And it's about him. Him, him, and the downfalls of this relationship, and it's a beautifully touching romantic movie, as as well as a commentary on how you can have a relationship with, and that's the thing. He, Chris Pratt is in this movie as his coworker. Chris Pratt is dating a living woman, and Joaquin Phoenix brings his AI on a date, on a double date with Chris Pratt and his actual date, actual girlfriend. And Chris Pratt doesn't raise any questions. It's like, oh, yeah, you're dating your AI. You're dating a robot. Hey, Samantha, da 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 He just talks to, talk to this AI like it's an actual person. And there's no, there's no big deal about it. I love that. I love the idea that, we're at a, that they're at a point where it's just like, yeah, people date AI. <laughs> Whatever, you know? I know uh, Blade Runner 2049 did something similar. So I think it was done, a, done better in her, honestly. Personally. That's just me though. Um yeah, just an all-around good movie. And uh oh Livia Wilde is in it as well. I forget that. So yeah, Kristen Wig is in it. Bill Hader? I didn't realize how many, Brian Cox is in this. Uh Portia Doubleday. Yeah. I didn't realize how many I have to rewatch this. i I missed all those guys. So yeah, um let's see what Spike Jones has been up to. Uh Done the story of Big Brother Magazine. I'm not sure what that's about. Apparently he only he was only in it uh, as a talking head. Did something called Kenzo World. Uh, he produced Jackass Bad Grandpa. Uh, he he uh, directed a short film. And... Uh, oh, yeah. Kenzo's another short. So he hasn't done a feature-length film since her. It's been more producing and directing short films and being a cameo and stuff. So, uh... I hope, I can't wait to see what he does next. I like Spike Jonze. Uh, and I really, I kind, I, don't, I, I kind of almost don't want her to be his last movie, even though it's a great note to end on. Still, just, an all, around, just all around good stuff. Number 29, The Emperor's New Groove. I, while Zootopia is an excellent movie and arguably one of Disney's best, I argue Emperor's New Groove is better. Emperor's Emperor's New Groove is better because it doesn't have the burden of being a social commentary. Now, hear me out. It's good that that you have a commercial movie tackling social issues. That is always a good thing. You don't want everything to be detached from reality. At the same time, sometimes it's just good to have fun. Sometimes you just want to have fun. Sometimes you just want to go to a water park and slide down the water slides, you know? You just want to have fun. And that's what The Emperor's New Groove is. All in out, fun. Just, uh, just outright, who cares? Let's not worry about it. Let's just have fun. That's what The Emperor's New Groove is. Uh, 28, Mad Max Fury Road. Best of the Mad Max series. All they did was get better. Every Mad Max movie was better than the last. I will have to see Beyond Thunderdome to confirm that, though. But yeah, Mad Max Fury Road. Just, mm, George Miller at his finest. And I almost don't want another Mad Max movie. I kind of want to just leave it there. Because I don't think we're going to top that one, folks. Uh, Number 27. Snoopy Come Home. Uh, Like I said, I'm a big Peanuts fan. And Snoopy Come Home was something I grew up a lot in my childhood. And I still think it holds up. I mean, it's a story about law. You know, it's a story about wanting to know your own history and also coming into terms with somebody leaving and going away and losing somebody and like that's like there's a whole there's a reason that the good you know the goodbye scene from snoopy come home is considered one of the most traumatic scenes in people's childhoods because if you, you're assuming snoopy's going to leave forever you're not cynical enough to think oh snoopy's not coming back because you're not thinking that because this was the most up to that point you didn't know you snoopy could leave you didn't know snoopy was going to go back to his own home his old owner and it's, and then of course, <laughs> the way it ends is just like this perfect, like not perfect, like ending note on everything. You know, it's like, so, uh, not to give too much away, but yes, the, the whole ending, the last sequence before the end credits is this beautiful, like perfectly in tune moment to Snoopy's character. And you're dealing with a movie that whose main character is silent. He speaks not one word. Except he grumbles and growls. <laughs> and it's all done through the through the actions and through mimic, you know through you know through mimicry and whatnot through his what he you know what he does and what things happen around him and that that's and it's it's a great showcase of how you can tell a story about a character who doesn't even speak can't even speak a word of any language. Just an all-around good movie. Love Snoopy Come Home. Number 26, Star Wars The Last Jedi. In terms of my... I think I said it in my Last Jedi review. The way I rank it now, currently, is Empire Strikes Back, Still the Pinnacle. Uh, Last Jedi, second second favorite. New Hope under that. Then uh, The Force Awakens. And I think then it's um, Return of the Jedi... Revenge of the Sith. Uh, I don't know which of the other, which of the two prequels go below that. I think Attack of the Clones is lower than Phantom Menace, but I haven't watched either in a long while to know for sure. And then the bottom of the barrel is in fact the animated Clone Wars movie that they put in theaters. That's what gave us Truman Capote, the hut. So I can't beat that in terms of lack of quality, but yeah, last Jedi is one of my, it, 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 there's a reason I love it so much. It, it does. It does. It, it you know. It takes your expectations and crumples it up into a ball and just throws it into a wood chipper. And it's like, that's what I think of your expectations. Screw your expectations. I do what I want, and it works that way. And I think it's a. And not to mention, it's a great commentary on holding on to your past. Luke became a hermit, much like Yoda, because he was, you know, ups, You know, he was became so. Obsessed with his failure. And it's it's coming to terms with the fact that. No. You have to to fail. You you have to fail. In order to learn. From your failure and succeed. You even see that in the climax. You see somebody learning. From their own failure. Not uh, not Finn. Uh, Poe learns from his own failure. Earlier in the movie. It's a through arc. People. Do you not see? Yes. I love The Last Jedi. I love everything about it. And I, can, and I only hope that the third ep- entry of the trilogy can end it on a higher note than uh, uh, Return of the Jedi did for its trilogy. Number 25. Nickelodeon's Rango. Uh, this one I don't know how many people saw, but it's another great parody of westerns. It's a satire of the old western style movie. Uh, as well as a commentary on the transition from the old West to modern day, and it's a beautiful, well animated movie because you've got the they they it's this weird amalgamation of of like almost realistic but just cartoony enough to not be real. It looks like something avant garde and drawn in two D that was given three dimensions. You know. And as much as it stars an actual uh, spousal abuser like Johnny Depp, it's still it's still a damn good movie, you know. Um, uh, number twenty-four. Well, the aforementioned Lego Movie. Corporate tie-ins can work, folks. It's fu- it can be good if it's in the right hands, and the Lego Movie is the perfect encapsulation of. The idea of creating things with Lego and having fun with the history of Lego and telling a story about creativity. Even though it's hitting a lot of the same beats as a lot of kids' movies, it's doing it in a way that we've never really seen before. And I really like the idea that, I really like that Warner Brothers has gone all in on this idea of animating Legos. It's a lot of fun. It's a, it differentiates itself from the usual 3D animated fare. Number 23... Sucker and Dale versus Evil, another horror, uh, mo- another horror parody uh, satire that works perfectly. I think it's even better than Cabin in the Woods at, at satire at satirizing horror movies because you've got because because now you've made the hillbilly killers that were in every other horror movie the protagonists, and they're just like two 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 rednecks. They th- they bought a cabin in the woods. They're thinking they're going to make it into like a, a, a like this, like this, home away from home. And uh, then these dumbass college kids get caught in and they think they're about to be murdered. And it's like, no, we're just a couple of dudes having fun. You know, we we're, we're bought a, you want to see your new house? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a real fixer upper. <laughs> I love Tucker and Dale, Alan Tudyk and, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, he's a real, he's a real like funny and f- like uh just all around uh great guy Tucker and Dale versus Evil Tucker and There we go Tucker and Dale versus Evil uh Tyler Labine uh Tyler Labine who's better known from uh... oh he was in the... he's in a uh... he's in the uh uh Voltron animated series I forgot that um but yeah uh, he's probably best known for uh wait was he in Super Troopers He's in Super Troopers 2, as a Canadian... Okay, no, he's in the new Super Troopers. But, uh... Apparently he's best known for Reaper, Breaker High, and Deadbeat. But yeah, him and Alan Tudyk as to, as the brothers in Tucker and Dale is hilarious, and I love it. Dirk G- Huh. Apparently he's in Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. I keep hearing good things about that. I have no idea if it's any good. Um... Wait, sequel? What? What? Confirmed that sequel is in development, to reveal that they are still actively developing a project despite other commitments. Yes, we're going to get a sequel. We're going to get a sequel to a Tucker and Dale. Woo! Happiness. Please be good. Just be. Please, just please be good. Just be as good as the first one, and I'll be happy. Uh, number twenty-two. Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Kind of a problematic movie in in retrospect. You know. Scott Pilgrim is not as well developed as he is in the comics. It's not the best adaptation of the source material. That being said, the visuals of this movie are, are amazing. And they showcase just how good of, of, a, of a visual director Edgar Wright can be. And the only thing that you, I would probably redo is recast Michael Cera as, uh, as Scott Pilgrim and putting somebody more, you know, more believable as the character. Somebody who was able to really encapsulate what makes that character work? Michael Cera is just kind of... You know, he was right in that mumblecore phase. You know, I think he just came off of Juno not too long before. So, I mean, he still had that going going against him. But, I mean, you've got a great, uh, you know, uh, supporting cast around him that makes it better. Like, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy, guy from Superman Returns. Uh, but, 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 son of, why am I forgetting all these things? It's been so long. Uh, but you've got oh you got Chris Evans, you've got a uh, freaking Captain America as an action movie star. You've got uh, Brandon Routh, Superman Return of Superman Returns fame, and currently the Atom on Legends of Tomorrow as the psychic vegan. Who <coughs> just all I love it. Uh, Mae Whitman, voice actress extraordinaire, as the as the as the sort of like curvy ninja girl ex girlfriend of. Ramona, Jason Schwartzman as Gideon works great. Anna Kendrick as as Scott's, Scott's sister is pretty is pretty actively underutilized. Ellen Wong works great as knives. Allison Pill is, is hilarious as Kim Pine. Oh my God, Kieran Culkin as Wallace and Mary Elizabeth Winstead really captures what works great about Ramona Flowers. Brie Larson as Scott's ex, Envy Adams is <laughs> like I said, the supporting cast surpasses the lead. And I think that's why it's... Mainly, this movie is Kieran Culkin's. Kieran Culkin steals this entire movie. But uh, I still think it's... It's still one of my favorites. And it's a great movie, especially if you're into, like, retro gaming culture and whatnot. Gaming culture, comic books, all of that. We could do for a better adaptation. I think a seven-season series to correlate with all the volumes of the book uh, would be even better make it an animated series, I think that would be way better. You know, like have, maybe not Adult Swim, but maybe have like Verve produce it or something. Uh, number 21, Akira. I think, it's my, I think this is my highest uh, ranking foreign film. Uh, but yeah, Akira, as much as it doesn't translate the source material well, is still a phenomenal animated movie it really it's, there's a reason so many people go back and reference it it is such an iconic film and they really showcase and and, and I get why they want to do a live action adaptation for American audiences because it's such a compelling story at the same time you gotta have the right people behind it we'll see how battle Angel Alita does I, the, Hollywood still doesn't get anime yet and unfortunately I don't think we're going to see a change in that until we get more of the people who grew up with anime in the producing chairs, you know? Into the production chairs and the, the high executive offices. Number 20, the aforementioned Persepolis. Persepolis is what introduced me to Marjan Satrapi. Marjan? I think it's Marjan. Um, and it is one of the best biographical stories ever told. Uh, both the French dub and the English dub are excellent. It's a beautiful animated rendering of her graphic novel. You gotta see it if if you've ever re- if you haven't seen it, and you I, I suggest or even if you haven't read the graphic novel it's based on, go seek out both because they're both excellent. And there's a, and it showcases why Marjan is one of my favorite authors and currently writing today. Uh, number nineteen. My favorite Edgar Wright movie, Hot Fuzz. I think Hot Fuzz surpasses Shaun of the Dead, which sadly eh, never made it to my overall hundred list because I think Hot Fuzz is ultimately better than Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead is a great you know, romantic comedy set, set during the zombie apocalypse. The World's End, I have a lot of problems with, especially that climax and that ending. But Hot Fuzz, per, almost perfect from beginning to end. A great parody of action movies. And once again, a showcase of how great a director Edgar Wright is. And hopefully now that Baby Driver has been a success, we'll see more of him in major motion pictures. But even if he's just making small independent projects, more Edgar Wright is not a bad thing. Uh, number 18, the aforementioned Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. Iconic sequel. One, once again, arguably one of the best, if not the best sequel. This and Godfather Part II, or argue, could argue, you could argue which is the better sequel but empire strikes back is definitely the more iconic of the two i think as much as godfather part 2 is iconic empire strikes back just is an almost is almost endemic in our culture you know it's almost a, a stitch in our entire culture and a re, there's a good reason for that cuz it's a damn good movie and we still haven't reached the pinnacle of that from star wars you know I think KOTOR would probably be the closest thing we've gotten to an Empire Strikes Back style quality story, you know? Um, I still need to check out The Old Republic. I don't know if the servers are still going for that. Uh, I heard good things about it for the longest time, and I'm not sure if it's still worthwhile anymore. Of course, I don't have time for that. I barely have time for any games at this point, but I don't need to go in on MMO and add that back to my list. Um, Anyway, number 17. Another problematic fave, Tropic Thunder. I think Tropic Thunder is along the lines of, more, it's kind of like a modern day Blazing Saddles in a way. Because it's the last time that you're ever going to get arguably um, acceptable blackface. No, it's not acceptable. Even in the movie, it's not acceptable. Because that's the whole thing. That's the joke, is that it's not acceptable. And... uh uh, what's his name? Brendan something. Uh, the black, the, the black actor who's the uh, the who's the rapper who turns into a. That's the, that's the thing I love about Tropic Thunder is that it's a perfect parody of Hollywood culture. From the fake trailers that play before it, from the uh, you know with the action star, uh, with the with too many sequels to the you know, <laughs> you know to the Oscar bait. Movie about gay, gay, uh, gay monks to the, uh, you know, to the really badly done, you know, slapstick comedy with all, that's all focused on fart jokes. And even the, you know, even the hip hop thing, you know, uh, it's, uh, Brandon T. Jackson is the actor as Alpa Chino, Alpa Chino with his tie in candy and drink energy drink, bust a nut candy bar, Booty, sweat, energy drink. Great parody of hip-hop culture. Great parody of Hollywood culture. And a great horrible um, sort of like horror story of a filmmaking gone wrong. Nick Nolte is hilarious as the uh, soldier who's acting, at, who wrote the book The Tropic Thunder is based, that the film within a film is based on. Uh, frickin' Matthew McConaughey is in a throwaway role as the... As, uh, as, uh, Matthew McConaughey is playing in a supporting role as Ben Stiller's agent. Think about that. That's uh, Steve Coogan has a great turn as the director who's in over his head. Uh, Tom Cruise is... Tom Cruise came back. After, think about that. Remember this. About this same time, Tom Cruise was making mediocre action movies... Dramas and was best known for jumping on Oprah 's couch. Tropic Thunder took that Tom Cruise and reminded you, wait, Tom Cruises can be funny. Tom Cruise is hilarious as Les Grossman, and, and real you know he um, he almost stole the movie from the rest of the actors and I, it's still one of my favorite comedies and you know, it, you know, it's, it inspired one of, you know, one of my ideas for a, for a making of story about a film, about a, about a film gone wrong, you know, a film production gone wrong. Cause I love stories like this and yeah, I don't know if it holds up as well because, you know, think, you know, so, you know, because society standards have definitely changed rapidly, but I still think it's a lot of fun and I think it, I think the commentary speaks for itself like if the movie acknowledges that the blackface is wrong and that what what Robert Downey Jr is doing is wrong but that he's but that he's playing it up and that's the joke the joke is that it's wrong but he's doing it anyway cuz he's th- cuz he's that stupid but if that if that turns you off from this movie i completely understand and you're perfectly in your right to you know denounce this movie for it. But I think it... I think ultimately... It... It... You know, like... Because that's the... Other, that and the also the line... You never go full retard. That's another thing that doesn't really hold up. But at the same time, what they're saying and what they're commenting on is all true. Like, the whole point is that they're commenting on the fact that Robert Downey Jr. is donning blackface instead of Hollywood casting a black actor. That's the whole commentary. So, I mean... Tropic Thunder... Is making all of this commentary. And unfortunately because they're they're kind of being hand-fisted with it. And over the top. It's not going to be taken as seriously. But I still love the hell out of it. Number 16. 16. I'm counting this all as one movie. The entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. Because if you think about it. It is one movie. Because Lord of the Rings was planned out as a singular story. It just got divided into three books. To, you know, I think to sell more copies, probably. But the, the Lord of the Rings arc, uh, if, you want, if you want to call me out on it, I'll say The Return of the King. Return of the King is the standout of the trilogy, but ultimately I love that trilogy because Return of the King almost doesn't work. I don't think it works if you haven't seen the first two movies. The first two movies lead up to The Return of the King. So you almost want to have it as a singular movie singular, like, 10-hour epic. I think that's how... I think that's how to, the best way to, con, to conceive of it, and to look at it. But, yeah. Yeah, The Lord of the Rings, it's still one of my favorite uh, uh, franchises, and it's why I gave The Hobbit a pass for so long. Because I love that franchise, I love that setting, I love those characters, and I thought The Hobbit had a lot of good stuff going for it. It just... I just had a lot more going against it. Number 15, the animated Watership Down. I love this book growing up. And in fact, there's another animated story that's gonna come up later on the list that's gonna be that's gonna be the two-parter of my favorite books as of my young of my young childhood, of my sort of like pre-adolescent childhood. At Watership down. And the other book are what I read over and over again growing up. And I love those stories. I even tried to get into that really cheesy BBC animated Watership Down series with what little I could get. I was on a Watership Down roleplay forum. We didn't, you know, do that kind of role playing, But we pretended to be rabbits in our own Warren forums. I tried to start in my own forums. And have my own and run my own warrants, that is how into watership down's mythology I got into that 's how big I was into it. Watership Down is still a phenomenal it 's not a kid 's animated movie. I still need to see um plague dogs as well uh, Richard Adams, other animated story. I think they work i think uh, but I think Watership down is a great allegory for the kind you know for trying to find the perfect society, you know? Like, you don't want a, a neglectful government. You don't want a tyrannical government. You don't want, you also don't want a secretly, you don't want, you don't want a government that's, that placates you, that's sort of like, that feels utopic until you realize what's, you know, what's re, what the, all the threats that are really out there going against you. What you want is the ideal, the, demo- the true democracy. And I think Watership Down is a great allegory for that, whether um, whether uh, Adams intended that or not. Uh, number fourteen, Fantasia, just an all around movie, and it showcases what the great pairing between classical music and animation. And I wish it was bet- bigger and some more successful. That and I wish more people. And I wish the the sequel wasn't such you know middling garbage. I I want more Fantasia. I want more anime. I would love to see more people animate to classical music and translate how they imagine that you know the what stories the music is telling. You know, I love that about Fantasia, and I think it's still one of and I think it's still one of the most accessible kids movies. Think about this: Fantasia, aside from the conductor. And aside from the scene with Mickey, has no dialogue. You don't have to speak any languages to understand Fantasia. It is all done through visuals. That is the genius of, the, of old Disney. He was able to do that, and he does that in a, another movie, which I'll talk about later. But, yes, Fantasia. Number 13, Deadpool still really pissed at Deadpool 2 for getting that woman killed. That is not okay, and somebody needs to be held accountable, damn it. I have yet to see the producer who made that decision be held accountable, whether it be him be fired, him be put, taken to jail for, endang- for neglect and endangerment. Press charges! Do something! That being said, Deadpool is a great parody of superhero And superhero comics and movies and a great and a great way to kind of undercut the serious self seriousness of most of modern day superhero movies we need a deadpool to remind us hey this stuff is stupid ain't it stupid let's let's all have a good time you know deadpool is such a you know is one of my favorite superhero movies and i'll probably love the hell out of deadpool too. It's just there's always going to be that sour taste of that, production, uh, of that production casualty looming over the movie. And until somebody is held accountable for it, I will not stop speaking on it. Whenever Deadpool comes up, I'm going to talk about how that movie killed that poor woman. And I'm going to talk about how the producer needs to be held accountable until something gets done. Until they say which producer it is, call him out fire him and and or press charges until something is done. We should not let it be, let it go unspoken. Next one, number 12, Captain America, the Winter Soldier. You know, it a it was this Winter Soldier was Marvel Studios saying, we can be, we can do serious drama. We can do, we can do an actual thriller. You know, we can tell an interesting story. And there's a reason the Russo brothers have taken the range of the Marvel universe because they're good at it. So yeah, Weird Soldier, one of my favorite Marvel movies, and there's going to be some more later on down the line. Let's gonna call that out right now. Number eleven, Jurassic Park. I hate the Jurassic world. That I love that Jurassic World has brought dinosaurs back, and I love that we're seeing more with the, with dinosaurs on film. I hate that it's so poorly written. And I hate that the c g i is overtaking the practical effects that made that movie good the c g i is what drove that movie forward as a as, in terms of production and in terms of you know production uh, in terms of effects progress, but the practicals are what made that movie stand out. you know the practicals were added were built you know are what led to the CGI working the way it does. Without those practicals, the CGI would not work as well. And Jurassic World has proven that. And I'm seeing more of that problem in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And that's what I'm afraid of. That all the dinosaur stuff is gonna be CG and it's gonna look like crap. More practical effects. Get Jim Henson for God's sake. Get his company to do it if you don't want to. Come on, quit being such cheapos. In fact, it'd probably be cheaper to hire more practicals. That'd be less CGI you have to do, you lazy pricks. (sighs) Anyway, number 10, Dread. Just, mmm, mmm, love Dread. And as much as people say, well, Dread is just the raid. (sighs) Dude. Number one, they're not rip offs with each other because, number one, Dread the comic, what was it, 22,000 AD or something like that, whatever the... Actual comic book, British comic book it was based on. Yeah, that predated The Raid. Also, they came out, like, around the same time. They were in production literally at the same time. They can't be a rip-off of each other. This isn't a Kimbo the White Lion situation. Get over yourself. Oh, my God. Speed is totally a rip-off of Die Hard. <sighs> Stories exist. They've, you know, no matter, no matter what's made the story popular... Just because another movie has that story doesn't mean it's technically a ripoff. Ants is a ripoff of a bug's life. That is proof. That has been proven. Dread is not a rip-off of The Raid. And if you think that, get the hell over yourself. Also, The Hunger Games is not a rip-off of Battle Royale, you freaking weeaboos. Sorry, uh, got ahead of myself there. Just... People think that, oh, I know this obscure foreign property with the same premise. That means that that means that this pr- big budget Hollywood production must be a ripoff of this obscure foreign property that nobody besides me and a small other people in this country have ever heard of. Hell, there are probably less people in Japan that know about Battle Royale than America. Get over yourself. God! Anyway, Dread's amazing. You should go check it out if you, if you haven't already. Number nine, Captain America Civil War. Just even better. I mean, technically like the unofficial Avengers 3, but I think Captain America Civil War does a better job trying to comment on the stuff in the actual Civil War mini uh, event series than the comic itself did. The Civil War event series was a hot mess, mainly because it was partially written by Mark Millar, who is an utter and complete hack. Mark Millar is the asshole who made Captain America a bigot in Ultimates and had the, had him literally say, pointing to his, the A on his forehead, do you think this A stands for France? Because, yes, Captain America, who fought alongside the French in World War II, would totally, di- would totally be bigoted against the French. Eat crap, Millar. Sorry. I just really hate Mark Millar. Um... Yeah, Captain America Civil War introduces Spider-Man and Black Panther. We're about to go see Black Panther next weekend. I'm going to talk about Black Panther in the trailer talk segment. Captain America Civil War did what Iron Man 2 could not do. Introduce these new characters into the universe and make them integral to the story. Black Panther and Spider-Man, well not Spider-Man, Spider-Man was more of a cameo, but Black Panther was integral to the story of Civil War and it made you want more of that character. And I'm so excited to see people pump for Black Panther. I'm so because ex- because I, I, Black Panther is one of those characters that, is, that for the longest time never got the recognition he deserved, and you know he's just kind of like oh Marvel has Black heroes, he they got Black Panther over there. But the truth about Black Panther is that he is really interesting, and the Marvel readers have known this for years, and now everybody else gets to know it too. Woo! So excited for Black Panther. Can't wait for Thursday. Um... Number eight, Wreck It Ralph. Just love that movie. I love, I, you know, I, I, as much as people were like, well, I thought it was going to be Toy Story with video game characters, but yeah, whatever. Who cares? If, I mean, the whole, the whole, you only know that because, you only wanted that because of the one scene of the Villains Anonymous meeting. But Wreck but It Ralph does a better job commenting on video games and being like a fun sort of, Sort of, you know, story about a guy. This is a story about a villain who has to come to terms with the fact that his job is to be a bad guy, and in the whole movie is wreck Ralph coming, you know, reaching the point in the climax where he recites the villain's creed. Was it the villain's creed? What was what was the what was the what was that called? Let me pull it up. That's the other thing too. Wreck-It Ralph is getting a sequel where he goes online, and I swear to God, if it turns into the emoji movie too, I'm gonna be pissed because I love Rick and Ralph and I don't want it to become the next become some sort of rip-off of the emoji movie. Or like side side companion movie to the emoji movie. Um What is it uh where's the uh I oh, it doesn't, it doesn't say in the Wikipedia page, um, uh, I am, it's good, what is that called? Uh, uh, what is that called? What are they, what did they say that was? Um. Uh, Bad-Anon, I guess the Bad-Anon, uh, Bad-Anon sort of creed. Um, the whole, But that whole line, the whole thing leading up to Rick and Ralph about to sacrifice himself, reciting, reciting the Bad-Anon creed, I'm bad, and that's good. I will never be good, and that's not bad. There's nobody I'd rather be than me. That is so beautiful. Like... The whole movie is about a villain accepting his role as a villain and make, you know, him thinking, oh, my life sucks. I want to be the hero for a change. But his pop, you know, but him realize, you know, but it's not about him being the hero. It's about being a hero to somebody. So he became the hero to a little glitch girl, you know, a little girl who got, you know, who is is basically an outcast in her own game. And I got stuck with this weird glitchy habit. And it's uh, just really an all-around good movie. And I, I, ho- I wish more people would acknowledge that deal. So many people uh, you know, are all about Frozen and Moana and Zootopia. And I'm like, my dudes, Wreck-It Ralph. I mean, Wreck-It Ralph. Are you not seeing this? Yeah, Rocket it Ralph. I'm, I'm really cautiously optimistic for the sequel because, like I said, they're going to go about app games and they're going to go on the internet and I just, I just don't want it to be the Emoji Movie again. I just don't want that. Uh, number seven, the aforementioned Pacific Rim. Love that movie. Great send-up of the monster movie genre and I swear that new one's going to replace the Pacific Rim on my list because it looks even better. Couldn't wait for that. Yes, if you love monster movies, you love Pacific Rim. I made my own Pacific Rim, Jaeger, because I am a nerd and I am proud of that fact. Number number six, Marvel's The Avengers. Everything in phase one was leading up to The Avengers and nobody thought it was going to work. Everyone thought, this is a stupid idea. There's no way this could possibly work. And now it's the template for Hollywood blockbusters. Everyone wants to be The Avengers. And this year, we're going to see 20 years of build-up to a singular movie. And then in a couple of years later, we'll see the culmination of everything the, Marvel three, the three Marvel phases have been doing. And I can't wait! Yes! I'm a Marvel fanboy, if you have not noticed. Uh, the next three, I'm going to just do all as one. Uh, number five, number four, and number three are all Don Bluth movies. Five is an American Tale... Four is The Land Before Time. Three is The Secret of Nim. Now, originally, Secret of Nim was going to be below Land Before Time. Like, if, it, if I was any younger, Secret of Nim would probably be below Land Before Time. Because Land Before Time was my childhood. I was a dinosaur kid. Land Before Time is my movie. Uh, America Tale, also phenomenal movie. But the more I watched it, the more Secret of Nim stood out as Don Bluth's best movie. No objective fact. Don Bluth's best movie is Secret of Nim. You can't argue me. You can't argue otherwise. You're wrong. Best his best movie is Secret of Nim. Secret of Nim is damn near perfect. It is a beautiful, dark, touching movie, and I love it. Land Before Time second best. American Tale, third best. You could argue where, uh, where um, All Dogs Go to Heaven fits in there. Maybe you like All Dogs More to Heaven Go to Heaven more than I do. But 80s Don Bluth produced some of the best animated movies the world will ever see. And everybody should go watch them. Number two, UHF. Like I said, this isn't about overall quality. This is about personal preference. And I am a weird alcoholic. I think, I think we call ourselves alcoholics. I forget what, we're, what we call ourselves. But Weird Al is my dude. He is the dude I aspire to be. I love everything about him. He formulated my sense of humor. And UHF is part of that. As soon as, I grew up loving Weird Al, and as soon as my, si- my siblings introduced me to Weird Al, and as soon as my siblings and my mom said, oh, by the way, Weird Al made a movie. I'm sorry, what? Weird Al made a movie? And guess what? It is one of the best comedies that nobody ever talks about. People say, oh, Animal House is the best comedy. Oh, Airplane's the best comedy. UHF will always consistently make me laugh. There is nothing about UHF that doesn't make me laugh. It could be problematic, because there's a joke where Ken Watanabe, Ken Watanabe, Getty Watanabe, Getty Watanabe, not Ken Watanabe, Getty Watanabe, who is best known as playing Long Duck Dong in *16 Candles*, and um oh, what's his character in *Mulan*? Uh, his character in *Mulan* is. <clears throat> Because there was him, there's uh, there's um, Harvey Firestein, and then there was uh, Jerry Tondo, uh, Chan Po Yao and Lee. So Getty Watson best known as Long Duck Dong and Ling in Mulan, uh, plays a <laughs> plays, I think Hoshi. Was that his name in UHF? Uh, what was his name in UHF? Uh, Cooney. He's, who, um, is Weird Al's sort of, um, uh, landlord, and r- who runs a karate dojo, I believe. Karate or judo? What is he, re- I think he's karate. Uh, let me see. Uh-oh, what's this about? Kevin McCarthy is... Oh, somebody else named Kevin McCarthy, that's the problem. All right, uh, I've got a thing on my, um... On my google um google add-on that lists uh public uh, po- uh politicians and their campaign donations and you know how much money people have given them and apparently there's also a there's, there's an actor in UHF who shares the name of uh of a senator anyway not important uh what is he what kind of dojo does he run uh where is it why is it not showing up Mm. Uh, I think it's karate. I, 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 I want to say it's karate. I don't know for sure. For some reason, it's not li- sh- saying what uh, Kuni's, uh, what kind of dojo Kuni runs in the, in the premise. Getting what it is, he doesn't even get a character, uh, his character listed. But uh, there's a, anyway, the whole point is that there's a joke that Kuni says when he comes to rescue uh, Weird Al in the climax uh, where he's in the closet. Someone says, "What's in the closet?" And they open it up, and they say, "Supplies." And it, yeah. I mean, at the same, I, I, I want to say at the same time, I, I feel like Getty Watch is the kind of guy who would make that cha- kind of joke. Uh, but yeah, it, that would probably be the most problematic. I mean, there's a character. Um, I mean, there's a, I mean, one. Of the, one of the the dude's cameraman is a actual is a Billy Barty. You know. Billy Birdie's in this movie as, the, as, as a weird ass, one of Rita's cameramen. It's, uh, uh, also, it's got um, Victoria Jackson and Michael Richards who you know, kind of tarnished their reputation as of late. But I argue that that doesn't take, take away from how good um, UHF is. I mean, it's got one of the best bits featuring Emo Phillips I've ever seen put to film. Oh boy, is my face red. <laughs> It just blood spewing everywhere. Oh, I love it. Where uh Raul's Wild Kingdom. Where'd you find this guy? I thought you found him. Oh, it's so beautiful. Uh yeah, UHF, my personal favorite comedy of all time. And my number one favorite movie of all time. I'm gonna say it right now, and you're probably gonna be not shocked, but like I'm sorry, what? what that, that's your favorite movie? Favorite movie of all time? Disney's Bambi. Now here's the thing. When I was growing up, I was all into dinosaurs and also wildlife. But what got me into wildlife was my family had a VHS copy, the old clamshell, of Disney's Bambi. And of all the Disney movies that, that we had, that was the one that I always watched. Bambi is a movie that I will always, always go out and buy. They just did another re-release of Bambi for Blu-ray and I bought it again. I pre-ordered the sequel when they announced it. I got it from, I got both of my copy, both my original copy and the copy I used to replace that copy that I eventually got rid of. I got them both from FYE. <laughs> Back when, you know, now that they're a thing again. Um, I can mention them. Yes, they are a thing again, folks. Check your local mall. Um, I I got the re-release Clamshell VHS. I got the first DVD release. I got the first Blu-ray release. I got the Diamond Edition. I got whatever this new current edition is. Bambi, I got the, I not only got the original Felix Salton book, my mom went on eBay and for my birthday bought me the official Felix Salton sequel to Bambi, which I currently have. And I still hold on to. Bambi is my childhood. Bambi is what got me to loving deer and wildlife. Bambi I, is a movie that I can see. I can close my eyes and watch the movie in my own head. I have seen it so much. And I love every frame of it. The beautiful watercolor... Backgrounds, the, um, the use of you know, the use of action and motion to tell a story instead of relying wholly there's barely a hundred words of dialogue. There's, oh, there's, there's under 200 words of dialogue. I think it's like 110 or 120 actual words of dialogue in this movie, because it relies on the soundtrack. Which is my personal favorite, although Hunchback is technically the superior soundtrack. But it relies on the soundtrack. It relies on the animation. It relies on the characters to tell the story instead of the dialogue. And it's a reminder that you don't need dialogue to tell a story. You just need to be able to tell it through the motions of the characters. It's been a through line through this list, if you haven't noticed. Snoopy aims to become home. Fantasia. And now Bambi. You don't need dialogue to tell the story. A good storyteller doesn't need dialogue. They just need to be able to tell the story through the character's eyes. And that's what Bambi does. Bambi is even, and I, I, the only thing I wish there, you know, the only thing I, and well, I don't even hold this against it. It is 70 minutes long. Bambi is only 70 minutes long. It's not even technically feature length. It's not even the full 90-minute feature length. And I love every second of it. I love every frame of the movie. It is my favorite movie of all time. And there is nothing, anything, that will ever trump Bambi in my eyes. So there you have it. It's been, we're going on three hours. I think it's been two hours of me talking about my favorite movies. And there you have them. My 100 favorite movies, as of this moment. This may be subject to change. I may revisit this topic again, but for right now, those were my 100 favorite movies of all time. And since I bored you long enough with this topic, uh, let's get into the trailer talk, and then we'll we'll uh, cut. You know, and then we'll uh, close things out. Uh, first up, big release for next weekend. Marvel's Black Panther. Let's take a look at the uh, the last, the latest trailer. I think the last one they did. Now this one's coming out. This one was posted on the the sixteenth of October. So, anyway, let's take a look at the tra- that trailer. I have seen gods fly. I've seen men build weapons that I could. See, that's imagine. Michael. Uh, not a Shannon, uh Michael. Drop. From what's the his name? From the office and play Bilbo. seen anything like this. How much more are you hiding? How long? Let's go. Ah, those effects look good. My son, it is your time. That's the other thing too, is that this is the true origin of Black Panther. Because in the comics, he had to get the. He had to earn the right to become the Black Panther. Never that soundtrack, too, man. Michael B. Jordan. Hero. Legend. Cause we own ya. Not I waited my entire life for this. the world's gonna start over. I'ma burn it all. I'm really I really hope Michael B. Jordan's character now? makes for a good villain. It determines what happens to the rest of the world. And I know this is going to be the last uh, Infinity Stone they introduce Is going to be in this movie too So I'm wondering how that plays into things Also I think this is Wakanda still But it looks like Tokyo And I love I o- Maybe it is Tokyo or Something I don't know Maybe it's Seoul I can't tell. I can't exactly tell where it is, but. Oh! So excited! Just mm, pumped! And that's the thing. There are actually movies. Pe- there are actually people who want to boycott and trash this movie even before it's come out. Because it's a predominantly black movie about a black hero from Africa! And people are. And, that, and that's a reminder that, you know what? People are absolute garbage. There's just always going to be garbage people. And you can't let them take away from your real enjoyment of something. Same thing with The Last Jedi. There's always going to be... Detra- there may be actual detractors. There may be real critics. But there's always... But there's going to be... You know, if something's big enough, there's going to be those assholes that try to tear it down. Because they're just assholes. They're just... Miserable people, and you can't let them get to you because sometimes you know. Sometimes you just gotta oh, love what you love, you know. I am that asshole for Peter Rabbit. If you love Peter Rabbit, good for you. Just let me be. You know, I am gonna be an asshole to myself about it, and then I am just gonna shut up. I am not gonna, let, you know, somebody talking about how much they love it. I want to try and let them love it because I know I'd want the same thing. And Thursday night, can't wait. Uh, next up. The poor thing, the, fir- the other poor saps, sap- <laughs> the other poor, I was going to say saps and suckers. And that turned into sacks. Why are they showing me the fine brothers? I don't need to look at the fine brothers. Stop showing me the fine brothers. They suck. Anyway, next up. Ard- the poor, the poor latest from Ardman. <sighs> Early man. Don't know why they couldn't have just pushed this forward to March. Did it have to open against Black Panther who hated Who hated Ardman enough? Why does Lionsgate hate Ardman so much that they're going to open something against Black Panther? <sighs> I don't know. Here's early man's. Here's early man's trailer. Since the dawn of time. Oh, hey, Tom hmm. Kane. Life on Earth has been constantly evolving. This is actually really good claymation but with too. every step forward. There are always a few... (laughs) ...still trying to catch up. A rabbit! So I've been thinking, you know we always hunt rabbits. Couldn't we try hunting something bigger? Look at the sort of tribe we are. We're a rabbit hunting tribe, and it served us very well up till now. I love the idea of the pig as a dog. The Waterwind tribe that brought you Chicken Run. The rabbits are forging back! (laughs) I don't think this is rabbits. The edge of stone is over. Long lives the edge of bronze also shout out to Tom Heddleston who is unrecognizable as the villain in this movie What's sliced bread wow that's the best thing since well ever I still don't understand how that became a phrase where have you been the Stone age your guys i finished. It's time to take our valley back! Eddie Redman, Tom Hiddleston, Maisie Pretty Williams, brave, Timothy Spall, and stupid. What strange magic is this? Actually, more stupid than brave, really. Thanks. The marketing budget on this must be way lower because that's the only trailer that I've seen come out. And that's like the. That's, that's like, oh, official trailer number three, but it looks like the first trailer. I don't, I don't know what the deal is. Maybe they had like a few menu, like title screens in there or something to change things up, but it's about the same. It's really the same thing I've seen all, the whole time. But uh, yeah, I feel really bad for this movie opening against Black Panther because I don't think anybody's gonna see it. I don't think anybody knows it's gonna come out. And that sucks because it looks like fun. It looks like a fun little caveman story featuring. Here's the thing: while Peter Rabbit stunt casted celebrities as their voice actors, Ardman casts celebrities who can voice act. There's the key difference. Eddie Redmayne does not sound like the traditional Eddie Redmayne character. You know, he doesn't sound like his. You know, he does, he sounds completely different. From, he, from what he did in Jupiter Ascending, from him as uh, Stephen Hawking, from him as... Uh, ah, what's his name from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them? Uh, whatever that character's name is. Uh, he, he sounds different from all of those characters in this movie. Tom Hiddleston sounds nothing like how you recognize Tom Hiddleston. He's unrecognizable in this movie. Maisie Williams. I doubt you've ever heard... You wouldn't recognize that as... Um, I think Arya Stark is her character on Game of Thrones. But if I told you that was Maisie Williams as the love interest character, you'd probably be like, wait, that's not her. That doesn't sound anything like her. That's the whole thing. Aardman can cast actor... Zoe is going to be in this? No, no, that's uh, suggested by Lionsgate, the My Little Pony movie. Zoe Saldana, Evidently Blunt were in uh, the My Little Pony movie. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I am excited. I am also excited for this one. Not as much as Black Panther, because Black Panther looks, you know, just epic on an epic scale. But, um, Early Man looks like fun. And I, you know, I hope it does well enough. But, eh, it sucks that it had to open against Black Panther, you know? A February blockbuster that pretty much almost sold itself out opening night. Like, I don't think, I think it completely sold itself out. Eh. Uh, opening night, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm gonna, have to, I'm to have to be prepared to go early to it because I don't because I know it's gonna be packed. So uh, yeah, uh, and the last thing, last sucker to be paired up against Black Panther. Speaking of Pure Flix, going back to fifteen seventeen to Paris, Pure Flix's first movie of 2018 is coming out, and it's a biblical epic about Samson. Let's check it out, Samson without the P. Oh my! Remember their prophecy. Oh, they want, want this to Samson. be Conan so bad. Chosen by the living god. They want to make this some kind of Conan movie. Of vengeance. It is will, but it is not mine. <laughs> god, that poor guy looks like a, looks like Taylor Lautner's. Uglier brother such strength. Three vows were bestowed upon me. No wine, no touching the dead, no cutting of my hair. Israel Israel, eleven seventy BC. With great strength. It is a story for slaves, nothing more. I want you to investigate this. Oh god! The costuming in this looks so cheap. You find me the secret of his power, my Delilah. On February sixteenth. You should have brought more men. A hero will rise. Him. Dead. Wow, they really want to showcase that quarry they got the, the strength rights strength to shoot in. God. I saw it with my own eyes. He is not a God. Chosen. Simpson, the betray. the is down your strength routine my name is Samson and you will face the wrath of God oh this is gonna be Billy Zane let me go back wait a minute let me go back and look at that Uh, we've got Taylor James Rutger Hauer Billy Zane Billy Zane is the bad guy in this movie Oh, this is gonna be awful. Oh, they're also doing the Book of Daniel. Wait, was that older? When did this come out? When did the Book of Daniel come out? 2013 is when they did the Book of Daniel. So this isn't even Pure Pure Flix's first uh, biblical epic. But it's gonna be their latest, and it's gonna bomb. Although the Christians and white people who have something against Black Panther do have something to go see in theaters. That trash. Oh, it's going to be... I'm going to have fun ch- tearing my teeth into that raw hide. Oh, it's going to be fun tearing it apart like a puppy. Uh, anyway, that about does it for me, which means now it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumpyCatNetworks.com. And as of this episode, I will start utilizing Libsyn as my official audio host for the podcast. So you'll, you'll be able to use... Most of, the, your, most of the RSS feeds will be done through Libsyn, but the home will still be at So Hopefully, if you're already subscribed through iTunes or Google Play, then you'll be able to um, you know, get this podcast as if nothing happened. But just so you know, the new episodes are going to be through Libsyn, not through Squarespace. That's the big thing because... I'm about at my limit for Squarespace, so I've updated to Libsyn. Uh, I'll also make a big announcement once I get enough. I'm gonna set a am lim- gonna set a goal when I reach a certain number of downloads per episode over a course over the course of a month. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna opt in for Libsyn's advertisement program so I can start making some money off of this podcast. Uh, so we'll we'll see about that. Um, I'll make the big announcement on Facebook when it's all done. But if you're hearing this, you're probably hearing this through the Libsyn account. Uh, so, wel- you know, welcome to Libsyn, folks. But our homepage will still be Gumby Cat Networks. And I highly recommend you check out all of our other fine programming. The Japanese pop culture podcast I do with Mike Majide. My Dungeons and Dragons podcast, Tragic Missile, which you heard an advertisement for earlier in the show. As well as, you know, it's, it's a bit behind. I'm going to catch up on it this week. And get some, in the, get a bunch of episodes in the bank, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm all excited for um, the migration to Libsyn, and if that goes well, I'm gonna try and migrate uh, Tragic Missile over there as well. But uh, we'll have to wait and see how well it works out. Uh, but you know, it's a big, it's a big movement, it's a big, big news for the podcast. Uh, you know, once and once again, if you're listening to this through a third party app like uh, iTunes or through Google Play. Or whatever I'm hoping to add, add, add more sources to the podcast. I think you can use Spotify, I think you can upload to Spotify through uh Libsyn. So I'm gonna ch- see if I can't do that. Stitcher, um, Spreaker, uh, we'll see about it. We'll see about all that. But uh, uh you know, if whatever you're listening to me through, leave a five star rating and review and let people know that you like this show. And the other way to let people know you like the show is to share it through your social media. Uh, the social media home for us is Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie. And that's where all the big announcements are going to be. Uh, that's, where all, that's where I announce new episodes. That's where I announce what I'm seeing a new movie. You get to see my reactions to those new movies. All the big announcements are through Facebook. And you, that's where you, that's the best way to showcase to other people that you like the thing. If you want to get more intimate with me, as it were, since we are about to hit Valentine's Day this week... <laughs> Uh, now, if you want to keep more in touch with me, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at CornJunkiePod, and there you'll also get to join me for the Munchalong segment that I do, as well as the, the uh, trailer talk segment that I do before a new release. So if you want to keep in touch with me more directly, you can do so through Twitter at CornJunkiePod. I'm still trying to figure out what all to do with the Instagram, but the Instagram is popcornjunkiepodcast.com. And if you want to follow me there that's where a lot of the Facebook feed posts come from uh, as what well, you know I'm, I still need to figure out what to do maybe i'll try to, I, I, do, I want to make more use out of it other than posting what I'm seeing a new movie and when I'm when a new episode comes out. I need to find a more a more a more useful uh thing more, more use for the uh Instagram account. Uh, if you want to see my reactions to stuff, you can follow me on on Stardust. I got into Stardust through Doug Walker. He's not doing the promotions for it anymore, but uh if you want to follow him, he's a nostalgia critic. You can follow jo- the other internet's John Bailey with an eye, uh, the Epic Voice trailer guy. Uh from Honest Trailers. He does reviews and reactions for trailers and whatnot. He has a pitch perfect Chris Hemsworth impression. Swear to God, the man you know, the man's like. The man, man has it down to a t- down to a T, and uh, you can also check out Jeremy Johns, the Schmoes, no, as well as some other fine uh, reviewers on there. Uh, I think even Real Movies has people reacting on Stardust. So check us out there and follow me at Popcorn Junkie, and you can see all of my reactions to stuff. I think I'm going to post reactions to. Uh, the trailers I watched tonight on there as well. Start reacting to to the trailers a little bit more. Maybe I'll start reacting to the new announcement trailers as well. Get in on that action. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. But, uh, you know, follow me on Stardust for more of that. And I also Twitch stream. I'm about, I'm at the tail end of Pokemon Red. I also finished Doki Doki Literature Club and have now started Star Wars Battlefront Classic from 2005. And if you want to see, watch me play through that campaign as the as a member of the 501st Legion, you can join me on Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, and and uh, have, and watch me have some fun with Star Wars, fight fight trainers as Poke in Pokemon, and you can see the heartbreak that happen that you missed last time in the Nuzlocke segment, the Trials of the Pokemaniac, where I play a Nuzlocke, and if you know Nuzlocks if a character faints it's dead and i lost half of my captured pokemon the last Lenslock. and it's a crystal randomized so you never know what you're gonna expect most of my team died to bugsy's aerodactyl and bugsy went by artist robin that's the kind of stuff you expect from a randomized so tune in on saturdays for that and uh If there's anything else you want to say about the podcast, anything you want me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of messages you want me to relay, any kind of corrections you you think I should make, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll either, you know, and I'll either respond to you in due time privately, or I'll, or if you want, I can also read your message out on the air. That does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and here's to another 100 episodes, or however long I can put up doing this crap the theme song for popcorn junkie is funky popcorn by the m look up funky popcorn by the letter m on soundcloud for more of their music artwork provided by nafyo n-a-f-y-o look up nafyo.deviantart.com for more of his artwork